Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and uh, today I have another guest with me, a returning guest, um, Guillaume Bignon, uh, who is, I always, I always introduce him as the French Calvinist philosopher. If reincarnation were true, he is the living reincarnation of John Calvin. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so I have Guillaume uh, Bignon on to address something that um, is very much related to the discussion that Dr. White and uh, James White and uh, William Lane Craig had, um, where the uh, on The Unbelievable Show, they discussed the topic of uh, Calvinism and Molinism, um, which best explains or has a response to the problem of evil. And um, what happened in that discussion, again, again it, it got a lot of um, attention. And I, I had Dr. White previously on to talk about his interaction there. And, and, and that's, um, I think folks should check that, that conversation out as well. Um, but there was a common complaint about the discussion between Dr. Craig and Dr. White that I want to um, help address by having Guillaume on to discuss. And that is that during the discussion, Dr. White took um, took the offensive and kind of drilled Dr. Craig on the grounding objection, right? Uh, you guys who've listened to that interaction know what I'm talking about. And while, um, while that was happening, there was not much time for Dr. White to really unpack his own position with respect to how Calvinism um, uh, answers the problem of evil and why it's a better answer. Um, so uh, to kind of piggyback off that discussion, um, I have invited uh, Guillaume uh, Bignon to actually address that specific issue. So this entire episode, uh, with some minor exceptions, we're going to try to tackle, or he's going to, not me, I'm, I'm the interviewer, uh, I'm, he's going to try to tackle the issue uh, of Calvinism. Does Calvinism make God the author of sin? And so uh, this is a very popular objection, and so hopefully um, Guillaume can uh, unpack that for us. And, and hey, before I invite him on, I want to, um, I've been reading a lot of comments. Um, if people wonder why I don't engage in comments, it's not because I'm ignoring people. Um, I'm super busy. So I, I have, uh, I'm a father of three little kids. We just moved, my family just moved into our new home. I'm a full-time school teacher. Um, and so I just, I read comments, but I don't interact as much. So please don't take that as me not wanting to engage some of uh, awesome questions that are, um, that are coming in. But also, what I've observed in some of the comments is really kind of just, um, how can I explain this? From both sides, whether it's the Calvinist or the Molinist or whatever, there's always this idea that the Molinist has this nefarious, you know, um, agenda or the Calvinist has this agenda that we're just trying to deceive people. And listen, these are really difficult topics and they're pretty in depth. And so, um, I hope in the comment section on this video that we show some charity like, hey, I'm a Calvinist. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, uh, convince everyone that Calvinism is true. I believe it's true. And I think that there are folks who can um, explain, uh, give good arguments for the position and answer objections. And that's it. I, I, if, if you're not a Calvinist, I don't hate you. Uh, I love you if you're a brother in Christ. And so let's let's uh, engage in the comments and the debates with gentleness and respect, as First Peter chapter three verse fifteen tells us. Okay, so um, we need to learn how to disagree charitably. Otherwise, everyone's just going to be calling each other heretics, and and you're not really going to get anywhere. So I hope that that's the nature of the comments in the comment section of this video. Okay, all right. Well, without further ado, um, let me invite my friend Guillaume Bignon on the screen with me. How are you doing, Guillaume? 
Hey, Eli, good to see you. <laughs> Doing it's great. Good to see you as well. I, I'm happy that you're on, and I know that you're a busy guy too. You have like 20 kids, right? Is that is that how many kids you have? I don't know. Soon, maybe. <laughs> no, just, just five of them. But they just, be just five. Just five. <laughs> so, um, okay. So your family's doing good. Everything's going well. Yes, wonderfully well. So Excellent. we've also moved. We moved out of New York, so we are a little bit more of a peaceful environment, and the kids have been loving it. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, we did have you on a while ago to do a kind of a two-parter, which were like over two hours, I think. We're not going to do that tonight, but um, where you had interacted with Leighton Flowers, Tim Stratton, and Braxton Hunter over there at Trinity Radio. Um, and that was very fun. And we got into a lot of issues there. And I think you did an excellent job. And there was some great feedback from those discussions. And so I'm really happy to have you on tonight to tackle this really thorny and controversial uh, topic. So, so are you ready? <laughs> as ready as I'll get. So okay, okay. So, so I'm going to begin by asking this question. Okay, do you shake in your boots? At, I don't even know if you wear boots, but do you shake in your boots when a non-Calvinist, whether it's an Arminian, whether it's a Molinist, or you know whoever, when they say Guillaume? Calvinism makes God the author of sin. And so you shouldn't be a Calvinist because look at the ramifications of your view. Is that something that causes you as a Calvinist to say, oh my goodness? Or is it kind of like, well, let's talk about that. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I should be shaking in my boots if the objection comes from Dr. William Lane Craig, because you know, he's a really <laughs> okay. smart guy and a very good philosopher. Um, but yeah, no, the the objection definitely is something that we should talk about. Again, like you said, let's talk about this, and I guess that's what we're here for. Um, but the the objection in itself doesn't give me great pause. There are some arguments against Calvinism that are important that to, to be taken seriously. And this is why I did much of my work uh, on that topic, uh, trying to address some of the most important objections against the uh, Calvinist view. Um, one of those objections is God's involvement in evil. So um, I'm looking forward to telling you what I think about the objections. All right. Well, um, what I think is missed in a lot of these discussions is really defining our terms and kind of explaining and expanding what one means when they say that um, Calvinism makes God the author of evil. Why don't you, or the author of sin, or however they would phrase it. Um, but what I don't see happening is people stopping and kind of unpacking that, because it's not as simple as just what the phrase kind of appears, right? How do you, how would you unpack and delineate maybe the different senses in which one could understand that phrase, the author of sin? Yeah, so this is going to be the very classical uh, response from the philosopher. Uh, like, do you agree with this? And the response is always, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends what you mean. So tell me what you mean, and then we'll be able to dive, dive deep and try to assess in which sense we might be agreeing and which sense which might, we might be disagreeing. So mm -hmm. for the authorship of sin, we're going to very brief, very quickly land on that question of, like, does it mean something specific that we need to be told? Or do we just evaluate that claim at face value? It just does Calvinism make God the author of sin? So it's going to be one first stage of uh, analyzing the argument. It's going to be to say, which sense do we have in view? And are there acceptable senses of the phrase author of sin? And are there inacceptable senses? So to assess whether we have, we have a good argument against Calvinism, 
um, we're going to need something like, let me clarify maybe what we need in order to have a successful argument, right? So let's set the stage in order to have a successful argument against Calvinism. Okay. Uh, we're going to need something like this. We're going to need to find a proposition P that's entailed by Calvinism, right? To say Calvinism entails P, but in fact, P is false. Therefore, Calvinism is false. That's going to be the structure that we really want to get in order to have a successful argument. It's a standard form of an argument. It's called modus tollens. Uh, it's Calvinism entails something, but that something is false. Therefore, Calvinism is false. Okay. Okay. So um, that's the, the whole um, point. But, now, Liam, I don't feel yeah. very comfortable right now. You're using way too much philosophy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, <laughs> philosophy is important. That's important. I'm just messing around. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll try not to troll. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. The, the, is God inappropriately causing you to troll me for the conversation? No, may, maybe. I'm, I'm just a puppet. I'm just a puppet. That, that, is, that is evil. But anyway, um, I think, you know, like, I don't need to use like even lettered propositions or what have you, but basically we need to see that Calvinism entails something and that that something is false and therefore Calvinism is false. That's what we need. And so the, the whole game now is going to be, can you find that something, right? Mm -hmm. And and this uh, setting up the stage is showing you a little bit uh, how heavy the burden is on the uh, proponent of this argument. Uh, because it's important that we set uh, the, the conversation in a proper context. It's an argument against Calvinism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a positive argument to establish that Calvinism is false. And this is how Dr. Craig intended it in the debate uh, as an argument to say, no, the Calvinist view is false. It's problematic because God is the author of sin on Calvinism. But in fact, God is not the author of sin. Therefore, Calvinism is false. Um, and so in the context of an argument against Calvinism, the burden of proof is squarely on the shoulders of the objector here. Okay. So um, in order to have a successful argument, it's the objector who is going to need to establish that we have this. So the, the argument, as I've laid it out now, is um, logically valid, right? So we have, uh, if Calvinism entails something and that something is false, then it follows that Calvinism, Calvinism is false. So we have a valid argument. But now we can appreciate just how heavy the burden is going to be on the shoulders of the person who tries to refute Calvinism because they're going to have that double burden of showing that they've identified something that showing us that it's following from Calvinism, right? Like, does this actually uh, follow from anything that we affirm? Like, are we committed to this, basically? And yeah. once we've established that, now you need to establish that that, in fact, is false. So okay. if you do both of those things, then you have a good argument and Calvinism is refuted, but you need to do both of those things. Okay. And so we're going to look at a, a number of candidates of something that may be found to be problematic with Calvinism. And in each case, we'll see, like, is this actually something that falls from Calvinism? And then if it does, um, is it something that is shown to be false? And is it a reason to reject Calvinism, basically? So we, sure. we, with that framework, we have the, the, the clear rules for what would make a good argument. Okay. And then we can see all of the different um, applications, the different uh, uh, attempts at phrasing this argument. And I can give you the good, what I take to be really good Calvinist responses to show that there is, in fact, no successful argument against Calvinism right. based upon God's authorship of sin or evil. Now, before we get into that, though, I, I can I'm I'm using my my prophetic giftings. I, I was raised in a Pentecostal church, by the way. I don't know if people know my background. I have the gift of prophecy right now. 
for, for, uh, foresight. Um, I can already anticipate um, before you made a differentiation between the different ways in which the um, phrase author of sin can be understood or is God responsible for sin or is that, and a lot of people um, when they hear Calvinists say that their antennas go up and they think up oh, here comes the word salad. Here comes the sidestepping of the issue. Everyone knows when we say that God Calvinism makes God the author of sin, we all know what that means. And so here comes the Calvinists, especially the, the philosopher now is going to use his magical philosophical language so that he can kind of justify. Um, before we move into the main gist of your response, how would you address something like that? Because I could anticipate someone um, saying something along those lines. Well, I, I don't know that we all know what, what is meant by that, uh, mm -hmm. but my best response is to say that we're not going to dodge anything here. On the contrary, I'm not saying it depends what you mean so that we can brush it off and, and forget about it. Sure. It's on the contrary, so that we together can dive in and try to assess, okay, what's the claim here? What, does, what's the, what are the possible meanings? What are some of the problems that might be in there? And look at all of those problems squarely in the face. So it's sure. really not an attempt to dodge anything. It's an attempt to be careful about what the claim is and to see if there are some good response for whichever version of that claim you want to press. Okay. So I don't think there's anything uh, dodgy here. On the contrary, we're going to try to cover all of those. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. I hope folks really get that. I mean, I mean, Guillaume doesn't work for me. I don't work for Guillaume. We don't work for some master uh, Calvinist CEO pulling the strings to make us say stuff so that you could believe what we say. <laughs> There's no conspiracy here. Uh, I hope that makes sense. We do need to define our terms. This happens a lot too when folks talk about free will. So um, we won't get into that just yet. But uh, when someone says, oh, we all know what free will means, or you know, Calvinism says there's no free will. It's like, well, we need to understand what those terms mean, right? So defining terms, I think, is super important, especially when we're dealing with the whole author of sin objection. So why don't you, uh, Guillaume, unpack uh, what you were going to say? How would you respond to this in, in detail? Calvinism makes God the author of, of sin in a way that is reprehensible. It makes God, you know, evil, as this was brought up in, in the discussion. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's the claim here. So we're, we're going to look at the structure of the argument and, and uh, what different meanings that could take and uh, what different articulation of that argument we can find. Um, before we do that, uh, you know, I'm going to be the philosopher who takes just a second to d dive a little bit in the Bible. Um, and I'm not using those biblical texts necessarily as a positive argument in favor of Calvinism, although I think that some of them strongly suggest the Calvinist view. Um, but it's just that the exercise we're about to do is to assess, um, is God inappropriately involved in evil on Calvinism? And I want to have that exercise with a little bit of background in our minds of some of the things that the Bible says about God's involvement in evil. And I think that it's proper that when we try to distance, uh, distance God from evil, we don't do a, a, a stronger job at this than the Bible does, right? So we, I, I've, I've often said that we uh, philosophers tend to defend God from his involvement in evil in ways that he's actually quite comfortable talking about his involvement in evil in the Bible, and we tend to defend him where he might not need much of a defense. Right. Um, so ju just to put our conversations on the philosophy of the argument in perspective of some of the biblical things that are said, I just want to read some of the text, if you will allow. So sure. Sure. Um, Isaiah 45, verses 5, and se se 5 to 7 say, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. 
I am the Lord who does all these things, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, uh, it says, I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal. So it says, I do these things, right? Uh, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And then in uh, Amos 3, 6, uh, the rhetorical question is asked, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So um, when we talk about God being the author of something bad or so the author of evil, um, here the language is fairly direct. Right? So does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The, obviously, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is no, which means that when disaster comes to a city, the Lord has done it. Um, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37, 38. Uh, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And then there's the book of Job, which talks about all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, Job. Right? So Job 42, uh, verse 11. So those, those scriptures, again, I'm not presenting necessarily here to say, well, if this is said in the Bible, it follows logically that Calvinism is true. Um, this is not the point that I'm uh, raising here, but just to say, like, keep those in mind. As we try to defend God's, uh, God's hands from being dirtied by evil, he says all those things in the Bible that clearly suggest we're not too, let's say that the Calvinist is not in too much of a bad company when he makes strong claims about God's involvement in evil, that God determines uh, evil. Now, now, real quick, so um, Molinist would affirm all of those passages. So, and I like, I like what you said. Um, you were, you, I think that was a, a, an appropriate thing for you to say that when you state these um, passages, you're not using that as an argument necessarily. And this is very important because I think a lot of people run the risk in these debates of engaging in, in what some refer to as a proof text war, right? You just throw a proof text at someone. It's like, well, the Bible says this. Well, the Bible says that. Well, the real question is, what does it mean by that? Uh, and we need to kind of unpack that a little bit. So I, I appreciate your uh, differentiation there between you stating the argument, I'm sorry, the scripture, so that we can have it in the back of our mind as you formulate your argument in just a moment here. So I think that's important for folks to keep in mind. Yeah, and the, the Molinist, like you said, has resources uh, in their view to affirm a pretty strong sense of um, divine providence uh, because they do have both of those pillars of Molinism. You have libertarian free will on one hand, but you have middle knowledge. So God knows what we would freely do in any circumstances. And he uses that middle knowledge to bring about lots of things, including things that are evil. So um, the Molinist has in that uh, model resources to affirm some pretty strong things about what God does. Um, now, the fact that his model allows for it doesn't mean that every Molinist is going to say those very strong right. things. And um, in that debate uh, between Dr. Craig and Dr. White, Dr. Craig seemed to try to really distance God from evil by saying he takes a fully hands-off approach. I think that's a, di dis a direct right. quote. He said, God is hands-off on, on evil. So, here again, there's resources in Dr. Craig's model of uh, Molinism to say that God is not all that hands off. Um, but you know, depending on how you uh, like, what kind of a mood we're going to catch the Molinist on, uh, he's going to use either libertarian free will or mo middle knowledge. Uh, one of them is going to say, "Well, God is really hands off." The other one says, "Well, no, He really controls." Um, so. 
yes, I think that the best route for a Molinist facing all the texts that I've just read is to uh, lean heavy on the middle knowledge path and a little bit less on the libertarian side. But uh, those texts are there, and I just want them to be in our minds as we discussed God's involvement in evil. The Bible says God does all those things. Okay, excellent. Okay, so so the Bible says it. Okay, who cares? The, the Molinist will say, I know the Bible says it. The real issue is what does the Bible mean by that? So, for example, it's kind of like when um, you have the Calvinists and the Arminians and the Molinists all claiming that God is sovereign. No, no, no. We hold the proper view of sovereignty. No, no, no. We hold the, the proper view of sovereignty. In reality, we all hold to a view of sovereignty. The real issue is what is the content of that term? So you have the scriptural references there. How would you unpack the uh, defending that those scriptures what they are intending to convey is what you as a Calvinist think is, is the case. Well, I don't know that there's a whole lot more than I can say to get you from the plain meaning of the text to the Calvinist view. I think it's more of a cumulative case to say like, okay. here are some of the things that are said, which model between Calvinism and Molinism best accounts for all of those things. So I don't know that I can take any one text and tell you, well, this one, if true, logically entails Calvinism and there mm -hmm. is no plausible Molinist interpretation of them. Um, again, all the ones that I've just cited are very strongly explaining that God is the one bringing about those things. A smart Molinist is going to simply say, well, look, this is simply God's providential control in light of his middle knowledge. And despite the fact that humans have liberty and free will, God can have that kind of control. And so I, I don't know that I can take any of them and bring them home, but I think it's a cumulative case between those and other biblical teachings. And then I have philosophical arguments against libertarianism itself. So that's the, 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 the pillar of Molinism that is libertarian free will, I think, mm -hmm. can be refuted by pretty solid arguments, biblically and philosophically. It's just that I can't take one of those texts and say, hey, Molinism is dead uh, in the water because of this one, just one on its own. All right. Very good. So let's let's address the, the main question then. Yeah. Uh, Calvinism makes God the author of sin. How is that not the case from uh, from our perspective? Yeah, so the the way that I respond to this claim uh, is that I think the argument is half-baked. So we're going to be uh, heavy in the uh, cooking language. Uh, you know, you're inter interviewing a French guy. I'm into food. So uh, we're going to be in the cooking uh, language here. Uh, I think the argument is half-baked. Uh, and I'm going to suggest a number of different recipes to finish the baking, right? So if the argument is not fully fleshed out by the uh, critic of Calvinism, uh, I'm going to try to finish the job for them and then show them in each of the ways that you can do it, why that's still failing. Sure. Um, so what I've uh, mapped out in my uh, reading of the literature on this question is that there's really three strategies. And so I'm going to be saying that there's going to be three recipes to complete that baking. Um, and there's one that's going to be foggy, another one that's ambitious, and another one that's timid. Okay. Uh, so the, that's going to be three recipes to complete the baking of the half-baked arguments uh, from evil against Calvinism. Uh, <laughs> okay. so let, let's dive in the, uh, the first recipe, which is the foggy. And so for me, the foggy recipe is when it's too blurry. Like there's no telling really what is meant by the claim. And it is precisely the one that we had at face value during the Craig White debate, which is um, Calvinism makes God the author of sin. And that is foggy because depending on what is meant by the phrase uh, author of sin, the Calvinist is not even sure which premise of the argument he should deny. All right. Remember, there's premise one. We need to know that Calvinism entails this. 
premise two that this thing is false okay. therefore calvinism is false and the calvinist depending on what is meant by author of sin doesn't even know which premise one or two he needs to deny and so we're going to need to probe a little bit. Author is clearly a metaphor here, right? So God is not a, an author typing at his keyboard, writing a story. <laughs> and he's not you know, writing with a pencil. It's understood. It's uncontroversial that it's a metaphor. Sure. Uh, it's, it's one that certainly has lots of connotations, and we're going to try to tackle them. But it's a metaphor, and we need to be told, okay, what, what exactly do we have in view here? And so that's why you find Calvinists a bit divided on addressing the objection that Calvinism makes God the author of sin. Um, just to mention a couple of important voices on that question, Calvin is pretty explicit that he says, no, God is not the author of sin. Uh, you find that in his writing. And so that's why a lot of people say, well, look, he's a Calvinist, he's a determinist. Um, that he, he can't really coherently deny that God is the author of sin. So that's that's a kind of an inconsistency on the part of Calvin, allegedly. Uh, but Calvin is clear. No, he denies that God is the author of sin. Uh, similarly, the Westminster Confession and the language that has been taken into the L London Baptist Confession as well, those very Calvinist uh, confessions of faith, both explicitly say that God is not the author of sin, right, in their statements on providence. So you have those voices saying, no, he's not. Uh, but my approach is going to be, okay, well, wait a second. Uh, it depends what you mean. And this is a little bit the answer that Jonathan Edward uh, provides. He says, I know that the phrase is supposed to mean something really bad, but you need to tell me a little bit. What does it mean? Because author of sin could be intended to mean something that's pretty mild, really. Um, first of all, it could very well be a fair description of whatever we just read in the Bible. Right? I mean, some of those that like God says, I did this. Well, maybe that's what we mean by the author of sin. He's the author, he's the one who did this. You know, he, he's the one who created calamity. He's the one who brought disaster into the city. So if that's what we mean, then the Calvinist says, okay, your problem is not with me, it's with the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's just one way of unpacking the phrase that would be innocent, in which case the Calvinist could say, okay, fine, Calvinism entails that, but that's not a problem. Therefore, Calvinism is not false. Okay. Um, so that that's just one one sense, and there are other acceptable senses. So, for example, the um, the author analogy, which is what it is, right? It's an analogy. It's a metaphor for God uh, and His control of what happens in the world. But the um, the analogy of the author is something that some Calvinists have done quite a bit of work on, and to say yes, it's actually a pretty good metaphor for God. Um, so you have uh, Parker Settercase, who has done his master's thesis on precisely that, the analogy mm -hmm. of God as author, and he's worked with uh, Kevin Van Hooser. And I think that the, the, the idea, that what they are trying to say here is that um, there's a sense in which God is writing the story of the world, right? Uh, and the fact that he's authoring it, that he's decreeing everything that happens, um, is not, doesn't mean that he's uh, sinful. And the phrase author of sin we could see a very mild application to a human author writing a story that contains sin, right? So let's say, you know, on this analogy, again, uh, think of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. Right. Uh, we would say that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of Sauron's sin, right? He's, he's, he's written it, but it, it obviously doesn't follow that Tolkien is himself sinful on that mm -hmm. uh, description. So... Obviously, this is not to say that's all the Calvinist means when he says that God is uh, authoring all that happens, but it's just to show that there's a perfectly innocent use of the phrase author mm -hmm. of sin. And so 
we need to be told what use do you have that's yeah. actually bad so that Calvinists would need to see if they're committed to it. Okay, so quick question, and I don't want this to, to get off topic. I want, hopefully you can answer the question and then get back to the point you were making is that a lot of non-Calvinists are aware of the author writing a book analogy. What is the common objection to that analogy? So some Calvinists will say, hey, this is a great analogy, right? And they use exactly, some use it literally the same example you use with J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, what is a common objection to that analogy and why doesn't it work? And then I'm going to grab you back to continue your line of thinking. I don't want to get you too off, off track. Sure. So it depends what you're objecting against, right? So an analogy is not an argument here. The analogy okay. is just simply saying, hey, look, there are some similarities between two things and it's enlightening. It's interesting to see those similarities. Uh, if that's all you're doing, there's no objection there. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of taste. Like, do you like the analogy or don't you like it? Okay. Uh, the, the way that I just used it, bringing it here, is simply to show that the phrase author of sin itself could have a very mild sense. And if okay. you forget about God for a second and just apply it to Tolkien and Sauron, Tolkien is the author of Sauron's evil, but obviously there's not real evil here and nobody would say that Tolkien is evil for having been the author of evil in that sense. Okay. So all I'm saying is that the use of the phrase author of evil can be mild. Now, immediately the objection could be, well, but the Calvinist God does much more than what Tolkien does here because he's not writing a, a fake story. It's actual, it's the real world and the Calvinist God is said to determine that people actually do evil in this world. To which I respond, yes, absolutely. The Calvinist God does much more than Tolkien does on that story. Huh. All I'm doing is saying that the phrase author of sin could mean something that's absolutely uh, unobjectionable. Uh, and so it's not going to do to just brandish, like just uh, like wave that phrase and say, well, because God is that, then he must be evil. Right. Um, so we're going to need to uh, pull up our sleeves and actually find something concrete that God does on Calvinism that is both identified to say it's, it is, in fact, entailed by Calvinism that God does that. And also, it's a problem. Therefore, Calvinism is false. Okay. And short of that, that's not going to give us a good argument. So that's why the foggy recipe needs to, we you need to go beyond this and to unpack a little bit more precisely what do we mean by uh, God is the author of sin. And so this is where we're going to land on the two other recipes that I offer, the ambitious and the timid, because it's going to be attempts to provide um, for meanings for the phrase author of sin and try to see if that gives us a good argument. And um, basically, in the neighborhood of that phrase, the, the real complaint of the non-Calvinist here is that um, God is bringing about evil, right? It's, it's around that. And so the, the, there's two ways that we can complain about this, either that he brings about evil or about how he does so. Right. Right. So and this is what I'm going to say, that the ambitious uh, recipe is the one that complains that the Calvinist God brings about evil. And the timid one is going to be complaining about how the Calvinist God brings about evil. And uh, the reason why I'm calling them ambitious and timid is the following. The ambitious recipe is complaining that that the Calvinist God brings about evil. So for you to make an argument out of that, you're going to need to argue on premise one. On Calvinism, God brings about evil in okay. some way, right? So here we're just saying the fact it's that he brings about evil, that's a problem. So um, our premise is that on Calvinism, God brings about evil in some way. 
But for the argument to work now, in premise two, what you need to do is say, but in fact, God does not bring about evil in any way. Because in order to, to, to deny the first one, right? So God brings about evil in some way. The denial is that God does not bring about evil in any way. Therefore, Calvinism is false. So here we have a logically valid argument, right? On Calvinism, God brings about evil in some way. But in fact, God does not bring about evil in any way. Therefore, Calvinism is false. Mm. And the problem with this one, it's, it's the ambitious recipe. It's too ambitious because premise two now is self-refuting for a Molinist. Okay. That is that you cannot be claiming that God does not bring about evil in any way because there's a very allegedly milder sense than the Calvinist, but still a very real sense in which the Molinist God is bringing about evil. He's right? just doing it in an indirect just doing it in an indirect way in which they think alleviates him from any responsibility in some detrimental sense. Exactly. So right. that, that claim is too strong for the Molinists because their own model requires that God do that, right? So or again, come back to those biblical scriptures. Uh, God does that. Right? He, he brings right. about evil in some way. And then the debate is going to be like, is this the Calvinist way or the Molinist way? Right. But you can't be arguing that God doesn't bring about evil in any way. That's the ambitious recipe, and that's self-refuting. So you can now uh, qualify what you're saying, but not complain that he brings about e uh, evil in any way, like in some way, but uh, you can qualify it in what way, more specifically, does the Calvinist God bring about evil, right? And right. so this is what now I've called the timid recipe, because now it's arguing Calvinism entails that God stands behind evil in such a way that evil is divinely determined, right? That's really the, the, the root of the concern here. That's the disagreement between the Calvinist and the, and, the, and the Molinist, is that the Calvinist says that our free choices are determined by God. And so that's now a um, proposition that the Calvinist is uniquely committed to. Like the Molinist is not touched by this on argument here. He says he, he's got the Calvinist in the right target. The problem is that now for that to make us a sound argument, you're going to need in premise two the claim that in fact God does not stand behind evil in such a way that evil is divinely determined. Right? That's the denial of the first one. But that claim is simply question begging because that's the very thesis that's debated. Does determinism entail something bad? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the claim is in uh, premise one is correct now. That is that we have we finally have something that's uniquely entailed by Calvinism. But premise two now is question begging because it's just a denial of determinism. It's saying determinism, God does not determine evil. Right? So, but the Calvinist says, no, God determines evil and there's nothing wrong with what he's doing there. Mm -hmm. So we haven't really progressed there. The, the, the premise is still question begging. That's still the heart of what we disagree about. Does God determining what we do, which includes our sin, does that make him inappropriately involved in our sin? That's really the question before us. Mm -hmm. So the argument now becomes questions begging. And so this is the pattern that I see in all the attempts at phrasing an argument against Calvinism on the basis that God determines evil, it's that it's either foggy and we don't really know what is meant, mm -hmm. so we can't even tell you which premise to reject, or it's ambitious because it's identifying, um, it's, it's not precise enough to uh, target only Calvinism and it ends up refuting Molinism with it. And 
The, or it could be the timid recipe that finally targets something specific about Calvinism, which is the deterministic view of free will. But then it's question begging because we need an independent argument for why it's a problem that God determines that humans being that human beings actually sin. So we have those recipe that fail on those grounds: fail to now, give a new term, self-refute, or question begging. Now I think a lot of uh, people who struggle with um, the Calvinist position, uh, we would define, uh, we would hold to a compatibilist view, right? Um, we would say that. Uh, determinism is compatible with uh, human freedom and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. But the mechanics of that. So they'll say, yes, okay, you think it's compatibilistic, but what is going on there ontologically so that me, if I'm a libertarian free will guy, so that I could understand that your Calvinist position doesn't entail all the negative things it seems to entail. So like we, we can say it's compatible, but I, a lot of people are asking the question ontologically, metaphysically, how does that work such that you avoid the charge that we're bringing against you? Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. And I think we're going to cover a little bit of that in some of the ways that I can unpack the objection. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful to discuss what's divine uh, activity in the heart mm -hmm. of sinners um, in on the moment of choice. And we'll get to that when I discuss uh, permission, basically. Okay. Um, so what I've done now is, is I've provided a, a general framework for evaluating those claims uh, against Calvinism on the basis that God determines evil. Uh, I think there's these three different trends and that when people offer an argument, the Calvinist is really invited to ask the question, which of those three is it? Is the uh, objector failing to define its term? Is he um, making claims that are actually incompatible with his own view of free will? Or is he just begging the question against the deterministic view? And my claim is that without fail, you fall in one of those three categories. So by way of justification, right, it's a bold claim to say, well, this is always what happens. Uh, we can look at now a number of ways in which this argument has been pressed uh, by non-Calvinists and see what to respond in, more, in those more specific uh, formulations. So what, what I've tried to map out here is a, a family of claims in that neighborhood that, okay. um, that are attempts to show what's wrong with God's involvement in evil on Calvinism, where he determines what we do. Uh, like, what are some of the possible problems? So what I've uh, listed is that um, some people are objecting that if God determines what we do, then he's responsible for sin. Yes. Right? That's the claim that's made. He's responsible for, for sin. Um, or some people are saying that God is sinning himself. Um, well, that was so one of Dr. Craig's view right so if and and because uh, dr craig said to dr white on calvinism god moves the will of man to sin and then punishes him for it so that is one of the major the major claims yes so it's in that same neighborhood it's not quite the one that i have in mind when people okay. say that is god is sinning because they tend to say that he's the one doing the sin mm -hmm. um, but yes we'll address that formulation of uh, dr craig of about moving the will uh, okay. moving them to sin i think it's going to be uh, again in the discussion of of uh, whether or not god permits evil or okay. actively moves it we'll, we'll see whether sure. what the calvinist is committed to here um, but yes, that, that's all in that same neighborhood. So is God responsible for sin? Is God sinning? 
Is God a manipulating sin? So some people are saying that this is analogous to a manipulator who is just controlling us to sin and, and a human manipulator would be blameworthy for what he makes somebody else do. So similarly, God would be uh, inappropriately manipulating us. Um, some might find problem with the idea that God is causing sin. So we can talk about a little bit about what that uh, entails. Is that demanded by Calvinism and is that a problem? Um, and then some are saying that now God is willing sin, uh, which is would be a problem allegedly that God is isn't perfect, so He cannot be willing sin. Um, and then the final uh, question is: Is God permitting sin? That is, that uh, people say that we should use a language of permission to say God is only permitting evil, uh, but He's not actually intending it. He's is really more passive in permitting that evil happens. And Calvinism allegedly doesn't have room to affirm those things. Therefore, we should let go of Calvinism. So uh, here are really, from what I could find in the literature, all of the ways in which people are trying to offer a specific argument against Calvinism on the basis of evil. Is he responsible for sin? Is God sinning? Is he manipulating sin? Is he uh, causing sin? Is he willing sin? Or uh, can we say that he's only permitting sin? So that's the that's the menu right now. All right, so let's let's eat. I'm hungry. Let's let's jump in and, uh, and order some food. So, uh, which one do you want to take? So, because those are all the the main points that people bring up. You know, how can how can a Calvinist um, uh, respond to that? And by, and by the way, I, I am reading some comments. I'm very happy that uh, people are behaving. Okay, um, although although I did read a comment. I don't know who it was from, but they said. You, you can tell uh, something, something to the effect that if, it, if an apologist has to take their time to answer a simple question, then, you know, like, boo, you, you know, talking about like, oh, then, you know, they're just trying to get her something to that effect. Or you can look at this question more charitably and say, we are dealing with a very difficult topic, uh, a very philosophically nuanced topic. And it requires uh, what Guillaume is doing. By the way, you are um, setting the stage and the context so that your answer makes sense. Am I correct? Right. Not only that, but I'm arguably I'm working against myself here, right? So yes. If you want a quick answer to that question, I'll give it to you right away, but it's not going to be very respectful of your time. That's the answer right. is going to be, is God the author of sin? It depends. If you mean something bad with it, he's not, and Calvinism doesn't commit me to it. And that's if right. you mean something innocent with it, then yes, maybe he is, but then that's not a problem. And then, turn off, and then turn off the camera and then everyone's going to complain that he didn't go into it. And then That's you right. go into it. So I think my response here actually successfully refused the argument, right? That's all okay. that was said. There was not much more said if you look at the Craig White's debate. Um, Dr. White, Dr. Craig didn't really elaborate on the question. Mm -hmm. It was just Calvinism makes God the author of sin. Mm -hmm. End of the story. Uh, and well, there was the qualification that he moves sinners to sin, right? So, but those two things are the only uh, articulation he gave. So, I could just say, well, you know, this is here's my response super quickly. But I think I'm trying to um, give all sorts of different possible ways in which the objection can be phrased. And right. these are all ammunition against myself that I'm laying up so that I can now tell you, okay, here's what I would respond to each of those. Right. So, right. the fact that there's so many of them is not really. Uh, something that's criticizable about what I'm doing here. On the contrary, I'm but, but being a musician against right? People criticize even the fact that this, this has to be laid out. But what you're doing is you're setting up the stack against yourself so that you can give your reason why you don't think those are good. And at the end of the day, 
you lay out your argument and someone, you know, they turn off the YouTube video and they say, I don't agree. And that's okay. But you need to set that context. So you kind of know what we're saying. So I think that's yeah. important. So I think you're doing an excellent job, uh, despite, despite that comment, but that's okay. If they honestly feel that way, that that's okay as well. So go ahead. Um, let's, all right. so, so let's, so let's tackle all of them. I mean, there's this yeah. is quite a, a big deal. I don't know how much time we're going to take for each of those, but I want to give serious answers to those accusations, which I think some of them are very serious. So the, let's, let's take the first one. So is God responsible for sin on Calvinism? Um, so let me just uh, quote uh, Anthony Kenny, who was a good philosopher who presented that objection against the deterministic view of, uh, of free will. Um, Anthony Kenny said, if an agent freely and knowingly sets in motion a deterministic process with a certain upshot, it seems that he must be responsible for that upshot. Calvin argued rightly that the truth of determinism would not make everything that happens in the world happen by God's intention. Only some of the events of history would be chosen by God as ends or means. Other could be merely consequences of his choices. But that would not suffice to acquit God of responsibility for sin. For moral agents are responsible not only for their intentional actions, but also for the consequences of their actions. For states of affairs which they bring about, uh, voluntarily, but not intentionally. So it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's giving you an example of a serious philosopher bringing this objection that God would be responsible for what he's bringing about. Uh, so he would be responsible for evil. Um, so my brief answer to this objection is that it's equivocating on the word responsibility because there are two different things that we mean by responsibility here. There's the causal responsibility and moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. That is, we can say some, some, that God is causally responsible, that it is just an explanation of the retracing of why something happened, right? So sure. uh, it's causally responsible for those, those things that happen. And the Calvinist who affirms determinism is going to be quite happy to say, yeah, I think that God is causally responsible. He's the one who brings about everything that happens. He's the one who determined that this happens. But that doesn't mean that he's morally responsible for the evil that was included in his decree. Um, at least it doesn't mean that he's morally guilty, right? That's the Calvinist view. He says that God is bringing about this evil, but God himself is not evil. And here again, the, the uh, important difference between the, the evil committed by the human being and God's purpose in bringing about evil is that God intends for the greater good. Uh, this is the common Christian answer to the problem of evil, that God has a greater good in view that justifies all the evil, the evil that he allows in this world. Allow, permit, decree. We'll, we'll get into that language controversy in just a moment. But the common Christian answer is that God has morally sufficient reasons because he's got a greater good. And he wants that greater good, so his intention is good. He's not himself guilty. But this issue that God being responsible commits us to um, to saying, no, he's causally responsible. It doesn't mean that he's blameworthy. And the fact that uh, moral responsibility does not follow from causal responsibility is something that should not be controversial. Even the uh, libertarians are fully aware of that fact because that's precisely some of the things that they argue against the Calvinist view of free will when they say that, for example, God determining our choices is analogous to coercion or manipulation or mental illness or that we're pets or puppets, all of those analogies that are traditionally brought by the libertarians are cases in which something is causally responsible, but not morally responsible, right? The person who's coerced is that, causally that, responsible. That's the question. People say, 
That doesn't make sense to me. If he's causally responsible, how is he not morally responsible? That's the key issue that the libertarian is getting at. Yeah. And so the, the here we can see that causal responsibility does not entail moral responsibility as proven by counterexamples, which are uh, ironically very classic arguments used by libertarians against Calvinists okay. because they say, look, you have a coerced person who is going to be causally responsible for what they do, but they're not blameworthy because they were forced, they were coerced, they were under duress. So you can see a distanciation between causal responsibility and moral responsibility. Okay. Similarly, cases of uh, manipulation, you know, by the mad scientist, if you have electrodes in your mind and you're controlled by a mad scientist, you're bringing about some things. You're causally responsible for the things that are happening, but you're not morally responsible because you're under this overriding manipulation. So sure. these classic arguments against Calvinism show you that the libertarian agrees that causal responsibility does not entail moral responsibility. So just tracing the causal, the causal chain from the sin that was committed by the human being back to the activity of the Calvinist God bringing this about doesn't tell you that God is thereby blameworthy for what he's doing. That just doesn't follow. So we're going to see if there are some different claims, different approaches that the non-Calvinists can take to try to establish that what God just did is wrong. You know, mm -hmm. like is he really involved? But just to say that he's causally that he's responsible without qualification doesn't work. And we see that there, there could be a, dist a distinguishing between the fact that he's causally responsible and the fact that he'd be morally responsible. Quick, quick question, and then you can kind of dispense of what I'm about to ask and get and get into what you're saying. Causal responsibility does not entail moral responsibility. Uh, it, is that the same when we're talking about human beings or is that just relevant to God since he relates metaphysically in a different way to the physical world than say a physical person and another physical person and, and, and those sorts of things. Does that make the sense? Is, the, yeah, absolutely. The answer is both. Uh, okay. So the, the claim that causal responsibility does not entail moral responsibility mm -hmm. is true of human beings. And this is shown true by the counterexamples I've just given you. Okay. Coercion, manipulation, these are things about human beings that show you that causal responsibility does not entail moral responsibility. But you're quite right to point out that the Calvinist has an additional resource here when applied to God is the fact that God is also a very specific kind of causal uh, element, right? So the way that God brings about things is uh, fundamentally different than the way that we bring about things. So there's room here for the Calvinist to say, look, there's plenty of things that are not analogous here. Which mm -hmm. means that even if we grant, like I do, that uh, some manipulations, uh, let's say the mad scientist would be blameworthy for whatever he's doing, the, the he's, he's making the, the, the patient do, um, that doesn't commit us to saying that God also similarly would need to be blameworthy for what he's doing. Okay. Um, especially since, once again, the Calvinist is saying that God has good intentions. He's going after the greater goods behind the evil that he brings about. So mm -hmm. what, you know, what we intend for evil, God intends for good, and that sets him differently, and therefore he's not morally responsible for what uh, he makes us do on the Calvinist view. Just a little encouragement. Uh, Converse Contender says the accent helps his argument. That's good. So yeah, it's great. So, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lean on it heavily then. That, that sounds great. <laughs> That's right. You should just All go right. full out French, and we'll get subtitles. You know that it'll it'll make you sound like like John Calvin. That'll be that'll be better. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so go so, for it. Yeah. So that's the uh, the is God responsible for sin? Before we move on to the next one, I should point out that uh, this argument might also be a case of the ambitious recipe. 
it might actually be self-refuting as well uh, because God is responsible. You know, is, that's the claim here. Um, we can actually make a case that this equally applies to uh, Molinism. And okay. they, here I have in view a, a very fun paper uh, by Greg, Greg Welty uh, called Molinist Gunslingers. Um, and Greg Welty has argued that um, Molinists and Calvinists tend to be in the same boat when we talk about what God is doing to bring about evil in such a way that uh, some of the claims of the Molinists tend to refute themselves. And this is the, the pattern I was trying to put under the ambitious recipe. And uh, Greg Welty's uh, illustration is that of Bullet Bill, which is the, the bullet yes. of, uh, of the Mario brothers. Um, and he's saying, imagine that there's a bullet that has free will, right? So they imagine that the bullet itself could decide to avoid the target, right? It could decide to do otherwise freely, indeterministically. Uh, it still remains that the person who's firing the bullet, if that bullet goes where uh, the, it was intended, and uh, not only that, but the person who's firing the bullet knew that the bullet would not, in fact, choose to avoid the target, then we have all the ingredients to say that the shooter is responsible. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not deterministic, there's a strong case to say that he's responsible. So if the problem is just God is responsible, then even the Molinist God could be touched by that problem. Mm. And that's a really that's that's the takeaway from this interesting paper by uh, Greg Welty to say, yes, you have indeterminism on Molinism, but don't forget you have middle knowledge and God knows what he what you would have done. And he decided to actualize that thing. So he really um, brought it about, you know, in, term, in Molinist term, he would we would say that he weakly actualized this uh, world. Uh, so as opposed to strongly actualizing, if the God determines what happens, but he still weakly actualizes it. He does it knowing full well what would have happened. So you can say that all of these ingredients for responsibility are there. And therefore, if God being responsible for evil in that sense is a problem, then that's a problem for the Molinist as well. So the, the is God responsible for sin could be a claim that is, it could be under the ambitious recipe and also refute Molinism in the same time. Hmm. So that's for the claim that God is responsible for sin. Um, the second one that I mentioned is, uh, is God sinning? So that's a, a claim that we can probably dispose rapidly because it's not all that sophisticated, but uh, you find it uh, sometimes well, argued. Okay, so this is wrapped up in what Dr. Craig brought up, that if God moves men to do evil, moves their will to do evil, then... God would have to be evil because it's evil to move people to do evil. So how would you respond to that specific point there? Yeah, so I will address that. Uh, remind me to, to, to talk about that specific phrasing when we talk about God's uh, permission, because my okay. challenge here is going to be to say, no, it's not quite right to say that God moves the will of the sinner to sin. Uh, but I'll tell you why uh, I don't really accept that. And I'll give you a model that explains why it's consistent to reject it. Okay. Um, but right now, this this uh, objection is actually a bit more naive than this. It's the one that says, well, when God uh, is causing us to sin, that's his sin. Like that action itself, that's his sin. He's the mm -hmm. only sinner. And so you, you find that uh, objection by uh, Roger Olson, who says that for Armenian, uh, divine control of every choice and action, and I quote, makes God at least morally ambiguous and at worst the only sinner. So he's the only sinner, that is that the action itself is his sin. And 
that that objection can't be right, right? So there's we can see that there's something that bothers the non-Calvinist in that neighborhood, and we can try to identify it. In one of my options, hopefully, we tackle what they mean. But this one just isn't right. From the fact that God brings about that we sin doesn't mean that he's committing that sin himself, right? So um, here, uh, I think the proper answer is given by uh, Calvinist James Anderson. Uh, he says that creatures commit evil acts, but God never commits evil acts, even though he foreordains the evil acts of creatures, which is not the same thing at all. So uh, you want to make a distinction here between decreeing the evil act of uh, human beings and actually committing the evil act yourself. And that's a distinction that Calvinist thing matters greatly. So I understand that the uh, non-Calvinists are going to say, well, no, you can't even decree the sin that stains you. Right, that's fine. That's the very debate we're engaged in. But um, the claim that therefore it's God's sin, that just don't, won't hold water. So we can dispense of that uh, phrasing and move on to the next one. Um, so the next one that I mentioned is whether or not God's involvement in evil is analogous to human manipulation. Yes, um, this is a big one for a lot of people. This is where you get into the whole uh, puppets and all that sort of stuff, right? So so, so I, um, I want you to unpack that, but I want to phrase it in kind of how most Calvinists hear it so that it would be helpful for if someone gets lost in the depth of, of this discussion. So someone says, hey, if... If God is in control the way the Calvinist says, then that just makes people puppets response. Yeah. So, um, well, it's not just that it makes them puppets. It's that they're, they're, it's analogous to manipulation. So there's hours worth of things to say about manipulation. And I've actually said a couple of hours worth of that material. I'll point the listener to a podcast that I've done with Parker Sederkes on his uh, uh, podcast called Parker's Pensies, which is, by the way, really a good podcast. Um and so there, my interview with Parker Sederkes, we've uh, covered the manipulation argument in great detail, and I can't reproduce this material quickly here. Sure. Um, what I will say well, is... Well, why don't you tell folks about your book? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so you, you can, yeah, indeed find all of that material in my book as well. That's called Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. Um, and that's uh, tackling all of the arguments against, against Calvinism as a compatibilist view. So that's uh, the claim that... Uh, more responsibility is compatible with uh, free will and, and that, that, sorry, that determinism is compatible with free will and moral responsibility, which is the Calvinist claim. Uh, and I respond against all those arguments uh, that say this is incoherent. And one of those arguments is the manipulation argument. It's mm -hmm. the claim that when God determines what we do, it's analogous to a human mad scientist or otherwise controlling, manipulating uh, a patient uh, and thereby removing his moral responsibility. And that's that's usually the, the manipulation argument. Here, it's applied a bit differently because it's no longer focusing on the patient and whether or not manipulation removes his moral responsibility. Now it's focusing on God and whether that makes him evil, right? So that there's a transfer of responsibility from the manipulated agent to the manipulator. Um, and so... Here, the answer to that uh, argument in the context of an argument from sin's authorship, right, uh, the authorship of evil, is simply going to say that um, we have, um, we, we can refute the manipulation argument by identifying um, relevant differences between the human manipulator and God who determines a free choice on Calvinism. So uh, the argument would need to show that there is no relevant difference between the two. And since the burden of proof is still squarely on the shoulders of the incompatibilist here, on the shoulders of the non-Calvinist, 
we need to be told like okay what is the alleged uh, similar like relevant similarity between the two uh, and if you tell us there's no relevant difference we need an argument for this and not only that but we can actually refute the argument by offering what we think is a relevant sim uh, a relevant difference between god and the human manipulator so um that's what I do in my book. That's where I'm going to point the reader. But basically, available on Amazon Kindle for check this out, guys. It's on Kindle right now. You can download it on your phone for two dollars and ninety nine cents. Yes, so, that's, and, that's and the, the heavy reward of your years of research right there. So that, it's, that's right. So you can get it right now. See, like, there are a couple of people say they already bought it. They just bought it now. So excellent. De definitely, it's de he definitely unpacks all of this in detail, and you can kind of take your time and plow through that. In more depth but um but go ahead yep okay. here's another so guy that, so that's really the gist of the uh, answer to the claim that god is manipulating us what we can say is that there are relevant differences between the human manipulator and god right mm -hmm. so god is bringing about things for the sake of the greater good against the intentions matter greatly uh here that god is fully omnipotent he's all powerful he knows exactly all of the good outcomes of the situation so in ways that if we do the same thing that's inappropriate because we and, and this is ironic because in uh, English language, this, there's a popular phrase for this. We say that this human being is playing God, mm -hmm. right? When you when you bring about evil so that good may come, you're charged with playing God right, in the process. And so this is interesting because I think that reflects correctly the fact that God is in a position to do that and we're mm -hmm. not. Right. So if God is in a position to do that well, that is, he knows fully what are all the greater goods that can come out of the evil that he brings about, then he can intend those squarely. He can guarantee that they will happen. And he's the proper creator and ruler of the universe. I mean, he's fundamentally different from the human manipulator. So if any of those matters is relevantly is a relevant difference, then we cannot take the sinfulness of the human manipulator and transfer it onto the uh, onto allegedly the sinfulness of the Calvinist God because the, the the property just doesn't transfer. There's relevant differences so that the analogy doesn't work. Mm. Okay. So, um, so and now and you move from. Uh, are you are you going to be moving on to the is God causing sin or you still have some more points on the manipulation? So I, I don't have any more points, but just to illustrate, I have actually a couple of quotes. Uh, and I, well, actually, I have one quote. Uh, William Lane Craig uh, is one who offers this manipulation argument uh, okay. in the literature. Um, so I have a quote by William Lane Craig. He says, the deterministic view holds that even the movement of the human will is caused by God. So that's, again, that's the claim that we saw surface in the debate. And then he says... God moves people to choose evil and they cannot do otherwise. All right. So again, standard claims against Calvinism that allegedly we don't have the ability to do otherwise. And that's allegedly a problem. And then he says, God determines their choices and makes them do wrong. And then he, here's the, the argument. If it is evil to make another person do wrong, then in this view, God not only is the cause of sin and evil, but he, because, he becomes evil himself which right. is absurd, end quote. So that's that's uh, Craig's formulation there. So there's a couple of the uh, different uh, ways of phrasing the argument that are in there, right? There's the moving of the will. There's the, the question of causing to which we're about to turn. And then there's this big claim that if it's evil to make another human being do wrong, then God is evil on that sense. Right. And my answer is that, no, we cannot buy this if statement unconditionally for every Thing that exists including god because 
even if it's evil for a human being to make another person do wrong for the reasons that I've stated, right? Where we are playing God, we are not uh, guaranteeing the evil, we don't control it fully, this is inappropriate for us and we are commanded not to do that. God finds himself in a very different situation. And so for God, it's perfectly fine to do things that for us would be wrong. And once again, it's to, to prime this intuition, keep in mind there's already lots of things that we say are like that, right? So killing someone is one such thing that is wrong for any human being to do and is just fine for God. That's right. Right. And, and, and so, when you say just fine for God, God's not just arbitrarily like zap, you're dead. The, he's not an arbitrary uh, being. No, not arbitrarily, but it's his prerogative to take your life. He's the author of life. He's given you your life. And if he decides to kill me right now, I mean, some of the ways that God kills people are uh, justice uh, bearing, right? So there are retributions for things that they've done. All right, you're, you're gone. And there's, mm -hmm. there are examples in the Bible of God doing that. But without it being uh, like righteousness or justice, like condemnation, if God wants to take my life this very moment, it's his prerogative, right? He can strike me dead right now, uh, either in ways that make it obvious that he's the one who did it or simply in ways that don't appear to anybody that God is involved. I'm just going to drop dead. Uh, that, that happens. So um, the fact that God does that uh, is obviously a tough ex experientially. Right? It's, a, it's a difficult situation emotionally to deal with. But intellectually speaking, the Christian is committed to saying this is absolutely fine for God to do that. Once again, with good reasons, justifying his permission of that uh, event. But um, this is the case, and there's nothing wrong with God doing that. So um, I'm, I'm bringing this example to show that it's not very counterintuitive what the Calvinist is saying with respect to manipulation. God is fundamentally different than the human manipulator. And in his prerogative, it, it's not arbitrary for us to say it's okay for God and not for manipulators because God is just very different. He's the creator, creator and there is a very strong creator-creature distinction. Sure. Um, so... That's how I dispose of the manipulation argument here. That's not a reason to think that God is evil just because he uh, makes us do bad things, right? In the way that maybe manipulators would be evil. So now when you say makes though, okay, that, I mean, see, this is the nature of this discussion is that everything must be defined. So does Calvinism make God the author of sin? What do you mean by author of sin? Does Calvinism make God the res uh, responsible for evil? Well, what do you mean by responsible? These are not throwaway, like we're trying to avoid. These are huge. So when you say he makes us, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And maybe you can say, maybe you can say we're going to get to that in just, in just yeah. a bit. But I really I think that's really the, 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 the key point that a lot of people who don't hold to our position would say, well, what does that look like? And how does that not make God, uh, responsible for sin in kind of the reprehensible way. Yeah, so in that last sentence, I meant uh, make us do evil. I meant determines us to do evil because I was talking about the Calvinist view in which I grant that he makes us do evil in that sense. He determines but, us to do sin. But if we give pushback, thinking from their perspective, but what does that mean? Okay, so make means determine, but in what sense does he determine? I mean, is he moving my will? Is he metaphysically... That's where they're pushing and saying, I want to know metaphysically, how is this working? Because it seems as though 
this makes him the author of sin in the bad way. Yes, yes. and I promise I will deliver on okay. my description of what God actually does on the moment of uh, sin okay. when we get to uh, permission. Right. I think that's I just want to make really sure that I'm I'm representing our libertarian brothers. I know that there, you know, people are going to say, yeah, but you need to explain this detail. So I'm happy. That's where you're headed. And that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sure. So, so, but but yeah. So here, this was not intended to be controversial. When I said, you know, God makes us uh, do that on determinism, Perfect. like on Calvinism, God determines that we will do that. And I think it's yeah. a proper use of the phrase. He makes us do that. I would I should point out that God making us do things is also something that's appropriate to say on Molinism. Right. Once again, if God has middle knowledge, he knows what we would freely do and places us in those very circumstances. Then there's a real sense in which we can say God made us do those things. Uh, the, the Molinists would say, well, yeah, he made us do it freely, but he still made us do it. Right? He, he brought this about that we are doing those things in his providential control. So there's nothing prejudicial about God making us do those things. And I'm bringing you back to those biblical texts I've read at the beginning of this show. Uh, God says that he's making those things happen. He's saying, I'm the Lord who does all those things. So I think the Calvinist and the Molinist are on the same boat here. And God making us do evil is not itself prejudicial. And that's why we again find the, the, the person who wants to use this as an argument against Calvinism is once again going to find himself stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock being that he's going to be either uh, refuting his own view if he's going too strong because he's arguing against things that he also must affirm as a Molinist. Or he's going to be question begging because now he finally targets just Calvinism. But then we are asking, okay, well, that's de that's determinism. That's what you mean. That's what you target. But that's what we affirm, and that's what we disagree about. So mm -hmm. now you're begging the question. So once again, the argument, the arguer is stuck between self-refuting or question begging. Neither of which is awesome for an argument. Okay. All right, so let's move then to the, we're moving from the manipulation. You you spoke about the causing, right? No, but not yet. So now the causing oh, okay. that came up in the, in the, in the quote, but in the quote right. by William okay. Lane Craig. Uh, but that's another way in which the objector can complain about Calvinism to say, well, you know, on Calvinism, this is different. God causes us to sin and that would be wrong. Uh, so a couple of examples of people phrasing this objection. You have a philosopher, Leigh Vickens, uh, who says, if God causes humans to commit sin, that is to act in ways that deserve condemnation, then he is morally blameworthy, even if he does not actually condemn human sin. Okay. Uh, and similarly, you have Ken Keithley, uh, who is a Molinist, uh, who has written, if determinism is true, then God is the first cause of sin. However, since God is not the cause of sin, then causal determinism cannot be true. So you can see the straightforward uh, syllogism here. Yeah? Uh, if Calvinism is true, then God causes sin. But in fact, God does not cause sin. Therefore, uh, Calvinism is false. Mm. So my response to this one here is that you're going to see uh, two of the classic recipes pop up again. The first one is that it may very well be an instance of the foggy recipe here. Uh, because causation itself is a very complex idea. And once again, we're going to find ourselves asking, well, what in the world does that mean? Right? What does it mean to cause uh, a human being to sin? Mm -hmm. um, philosophically, in the philosophical literature, there's tons of controversy about what it means to cause. What is a cause? What types of causes? Um, and I'm going to quote a non-Calvinist, a very famous libertarian philosopher, Peter Van Inwagen, who said that causation is a morass in which I refuse to step foot not unless I am pushed. 
So you you like it's extremely difficult to use causation uh, meaningfully, especially in a controversial argument, because people are going to be having very different notions of what that means. So uh, that that might well be the case of the foggy, like okay, God causes sin. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if once again you clarify by saying, well, causing just is determining then you're back onto the ambitious recipe and you're self-refuting because... Sorry, no, like you're in the timid recipe because you're saying, well, you know, the problem is determinism and that's the very issue that we disagree about. That's the very issue that's debated. So now you're begging the question if you say this is false. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you clarify the foggy here by saying causation just is determinism, then you're in the timid recipe and you're question begging. And then alternatively... Uh, you could also use causation in an argument that now is in the ambitious recipe, and that's going to be self-refuting. And the reason for that is that cause doesn't have to be deterministic, right? So uh, the, the, it's it's frequent to in the popular circles to have people describe causation as being just determinism, like right? God causes us, he determines that we do something. As a matter of fact, the, the phrasing of causation is meaningful also for things that are not necessarily determined. And here we are back to talking about what the Molinist God does when he actualizes a world in which he knew that we would do something. It's perfectly appropriate to say that he caused us to do that. He just indeterministically caused, but mm -hmm. he still caused, right? So the, the, the use of that word here, if we don't mean to exclude determinism, could well be that it applies to the Molinist view, in which case, if causing evil is a problem on that sense, then... Molinism is also refuted by that uh, argument. So you're finding yourself once again refuting your own view if you try to avoid begging the question on the argument. Okay. All right. But that is... So that's for causing sin. So causing God sin. causing sin, that's the responses that we'd give. All right. Now, now I am going to use my executive powers. If we can move quickly through the last two points so that we can get to some questions because Guillaume I don't know if you see this but there are a lot of people watching and there are a lot of excellent questions and so if we can move through those last points I mean say what you need to say of course I mean I don't want to rush you if you need to kind of lay things out but then I just basically want to uh, bombard you with questions that people are you're asking now again I want to I want to encourage folks to um, write the word question in front of your question so that I could differentiate them from the comments. Of course, super chats, uh, there are a couple of them. So they're the easiest to see because they're bright neon on my screen. So I might run to those uh, first, but um, I'm going to try to get to a bunch of them um, until uh, Guillaume passes out. And then we know we should, uh, <laughs> and we know we should stop. <laughs> so um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so why don't you run through those last two points and then, um, and then we'll move on to the, the question because um, I don't want to, take too long because other than the people watching now i'm not sure if anyone else will watch two hours when we're all done some people might all right we, we shall see i mean uh, we're trying to be thorough here i think that exhaustiveness is, is a virtue for this question that we'll we'll Absolutely. be able to say we've done really a deep dive and we've covered all of the bases so let me cover the last two bases uh, as quickly as i can sure. i think the the next one is is God willing sin? Right? That's another way in which the argument has been offered to say, if Calvinism is true, then God is willing that we sin. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, God does not will that we sin. He really wills that we don't sin. Uh, therefore, Calvinism is false. Uh, and this argument, for example, is offered by Catherine Rogers, which is a very serious philosopher. And she says, if Calvinism is true, 
God wills that we sin, but sin is by definition that which God does not will. Therefore, Calvinism is false. That's really the, the, the gist of the argument here. And my response here is fairly standard. It's simply to say that there's an equivocation between those two premises. Um, that there's a sense of the will of God that is perfectly um, uh, distinguishable between God's prescriptive will and God's decretive will. So the prescriptive will is what God commands to us. He's what he prescribes that we do. It's, it's really his prescription for our lives. And that's his will in a very real sense. He wants mm -hmm. us to do those things. Uh, he commands them. He wants us to do them. And then his decretive will is simply his ultimate will for what in fact happens in the world. Right. So that's a very meaningful sense of God's will as well. But we can see that those two senses can at times differ because there are sometimes, plenty of times on the Calvinist view, at which what God most, most desires, most wills happens, like his highest will, his decretive will, actually involves the breaking of his prescriptions. And once again, it's because he's going for a greater good. He has morally sufficient reasons to prefer that the evil happens. But it's obvious that there are, it's coherent to say that in the prescriptive sense, he wills that we don't sin, even if in the decretive sense, he decrees that this is going to happen. And this, is, this should not be uniquely uh, affirmed by a Calvinist because even the Arminians or the, or the Molinists, like the Libertarians, are committed to saying that there are different degrees of God's will and that when that happens, he gives preference to his highest desire. Um, and very much extending liberty and free will is just one case where, uh, just one such case where God has conflicting wills, right? On the, Calvin, the non-Calvinist views. On the libertarian views, God wants, uh, let's say, you know, let's say God wants everyone to be saved. But he also wants to give us libertarian free will. Mm -hmm. And by giving us libertarian free will, it follows, it, it, it turns out that people, not everybody is saved because we misuse our free will. And so no one it says that's a, a fully Arminian uh, pro proposition here. And on that view, it's correct that God wants something and he also wants something more. And therefore, he brings about that other thing. So uh, the fact that he that God has a permissive will is also something that Molinists should be affirming that God wants he wills that everyone be saved, but he has a permissive will that we are not in fact all saved because it's more important to him to give us liberty and free will. And Doctor Craig, well and, good, but. and Doctor Craig affirmed the two wills in the discussion, if you remember, right? Maybe uh, not in the same way, but did he did he not um, affirm that there was a kind of a decretive and prescriptive? Yeah, I don't remember if that was affirmed by uh, Dr. Craig. I, I think that Dr. White uh, presented this, which is really a standard uh, reform. Sure. Understanding. That's a I could have I heard but, Dr. Craig say something that was along those lines. And, and if, someone... if, he did, if he did, that's great. That means that he, he recognizes that you cannot just say, well, God doesn't will sin because that's against his will. You know, like you need to clarify mm -hmm. which sense of the will. Sure, and therefore, sure. there's an equivocation and the okay. argument doesn't work. Okay. There are some non-libertarians who, sorry, some libertarians, so non-Calvinists, who do criticize this distinction between God's wills, uh, saying that it makes God duplicitous or that two-willed. Uh, I think that those criticism is really misguided because they don't realize that distinction is fully coherent and it's necessary for their own non-Calvinist worldview. So mm -hmm. I think that the argument just doesn't work for the reasons I've laid out here. Okay. All right. Okay, so that's for God willing sin. And then the last one is, is the interesting one, I think, where we get to dive in a little bit about what 
what really happens when um, there's a sinning that's happening? Like, what is God doing? And it's the question of whether God is permitting sin. Like, mm. uh, so it, it's it's said that uh, we w- we don't want to say that God intends sins or that He actively determines that it's happening. Uh, we want to say that God is permitting sin. And uh, so when Calvinists start to talk about permission, uh, you can see the comments section uh, multiplying the objection, saying, well, how can you use that word permission? Well, what does God permit? That's not coherent with determinism. Is he permitting his own determinations? I I hear that one often. Exactly. So so you're familiar with that. So the objection here is that uh, language of divine permission is not accessible to the Calvinist. So what I've done in my uh, writing is to try to defend a model that's very intuitively granting the right to the Calvinist to use this permission language. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to understand the, uh, the the context of the argument. It, it's, it is an argument against Calvinism. So maybe let's read it from a, a very uh, a prominent uh, Molinist philosopher, uh, Thomas Flint. Um, mm-hmm. He says this, if God is perfectly good, then we cannot have him directly causing evil especially the morally evil actions which his free beings all too often perform. Evil is permitted, but not intended by God. Hence, we cannot have him predetermining it via interestingly efficacious concurrent activity. That's a mouthful. It's another way of saying you cannot have God determining what's going on, uh, because then you can't say that he permits the evil. Um, And uh, you can read it in a bit more accessible way by Roger Olson, who says, if it is logical for Calvinists to say God permits or allows evil, they can only mean that in a highly attenuated and unusual sense of permits and allows, one that falls outside the ordinary language of most people. Okay. So the, the objection is laid out here. Uh, can you coherently, like without twisting words, actually use the word of permission for God with respect to evil? Uh, and this is really related to uh, Craig's point, the one that you've been uh, bringing a, a couple of times, that uh, God allegedly moves the will of the creature to do evil. And I think that uh, Dr. White did respond to that claim um, after a few uh, back and forth. Like He took a, a couple of times mentioning the objection on the side. Uh, Dr. White finally had the time to re- respond. And he's saying, it's not like the human being is just sitting here still, not doing anything, minding his own business. And then God actively comes and messes up his will on the moment of choice so that now he's going to will something that's evil that he wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, and I think that's that's along those lines that my model is going to defend the view. So I think that Dr. White was quite right in protesting with that wording. But let me give you a little bit of a model for how that actually works. So um, w- what's important here is to understand what is the nature of the concern. The concern is that um, there is not an asymmetry in what God does in the case of human doing evil and humans doing good. Right. So um, this is uh, this is really a question of whether we have something that's affirmable when God makes us do bad. That's not affirmable when God makes us do good or vice versa. Okay. So there's an asymmetry. Right. The two are not symmetrical. um, And the, the, the goal here is to maintain that with permission language to say that in the case of doing evil, God permits evil. And whatever we mean by that, like whatever activity of God is being described here, this is not something that we would say of the good, right? So that's the goal, it's this asymmetry. And that's exactly what um, what uh, Dr. Craig actually affirms uh, in The Only Wise God. Uh, he says that if God foreordains and brings about evil thoughts and deeds, 
it seems impossible to give an adequate account of this biblical asymmetry. Right? So it's the asymmetry. Is God doing something specific? Uh, like, is he actively engaged in bringing in when we bring out the good and in we uh, bring out the good and in a way that he's passively uh, permitting that we do the evil? Mm. Right? So that's the question before us. And so the Calvinists, uh, it, it's now argued, doesn't have the resources to do that because God determines everything. Sure. So he cannot distinguish between the good and the evil. Even the evil must be uh, such that you cannot say it's permitted. Like, well, God determines it, so he doesn't just permit it. He have a, actually actively brings it about, actively causes it, whatever you want to say, intends it, but he does not just permit it. And so are we clear on the objection here? That I think it's it's perfectly understood and framed and we're looking for this asymmetry so the first thing that i want to point out here as i respond and offer a model that satisfies this is that we're all on the same boat actually and the molinist fails to see that often but the asymmetry is not going to be brought about by simply bringing in libertarian free will because libertarianism is bringing in indeterminism, right? It's saying that our free choices are not causally determined. They're not determined by God. And that's the libertarian view. But that's applying to all free choices, good or bad, right? So mm -hmm. when the Molinist is looking at the Calvinist model and saying, well, look, you're determining, you're having God determine human choices, that, that's our evil choices. He's determining them. So we can't say that he permits them. So you need to cut that with indeterminism in the chain, right? So you need to bring in indeterminism in order to be able to say he only permits evil. Well, if indeterminism is what cuts this link in such a way that you say that God permits things, then this is applicable to both good and evil. So now all of a sudden, whatever you were trying to affirm of evil, that God only permits it, is immediately affirmed of the good as well. And now you find yourself saying that God only permits the good as well. So you lose the asymmetry immediately if all you're bringing about is libertarian free will. That's apply, mm. apply, applicable to both the good and the bad. And so just like a bump in the carpet, you, you remove the, the causation on one side, it's going to apply to the other side. So the, the problem of permission is, is now popping up on the good instead of the bad. Okay. So, so what I'm trying to show here is that the problem of the asymmetry between God permitting evil and God intending the good is not going to be secured by the Molinists simply by saying we have liberty and free will, therefore God can do that. Mm. So what I'm saying is that it's, it shouldn't be a disagreement between Calvinists and Molinists. On the contrary, what I'm going to suggest is a good model for this asymmetry is going to be accessible to the Calvinists, right? I'm trying to save my own boat here, but I'm going to say the Molinist is on that boat because that model is the same thing that the Molinists should affirm in order to have this asymmetry between the good and the bad. Hmm. Okay, so wow. here's what I suggest now. So the model that I think works here is one um, where let me give you an example of a perfectly meaningful uh, description of language of permission. Okay. In a use case that is uncontroversially deterministic. So this is what the libertarian is asking me, right? I have my determinist model of God's providence. And they're asking me, well, how can you speak about permission when your model is deterministic? Right. So let me give you an illustration that's removing the human choices. So where let's shelf the controversy for a second. I'll give you a fully deterministic uh, event and show you that it's perfectly meaningful to speak of permission language. And my example is that of a bobsled on a snowy uh, uh, track. 
Okay. So think of the bobsled on the track. The activity of the bobsled itself is purely determined by the laws of physics, right? So it's the forces that are driving it down the, the track. But so you put the bobsled on that, uh, that track that's slanted. And once the bobsled is on the track, you want to consider the activities that are necessary for the bobsled to continue going and accelerating or to stop. What you need to do now at this point, if you're the driver in the bobsled, is to do something that's very different if you want it to accelerate or stop. There's one that's going to be very passive and the other one's going to be very active. So if you want to just go down, then all you have to do is do nothing. You know, let it, let it uh, slide and it's going to accelerate. But if you want it to stop, you need to actively put on the brakes and stop mm -hmm. it, right? So here, in this case, I think it's very meaningful to say that the driver of the bobsled must actively engage the brake if he wants to stop, but can passively permit the bobsled to go down. If he just withholds his activity, he's, he doesn't intervene, just let it slide, then he permits the bobsled to slide, whereas there's the asymmetry, right? It's a different activity where it's much more active if he wants to break. So on that model here, you can see there are asymmetry, and it's perfectly meaningful to speak of permission in the case of letting it slide, and yet it's fully deterministic, right? So you can see that it's coherent to speak of permission language when it's fully deterministic. Mm -hmm. If you have that feature that I'm going to highlight, which is that you need the initial slant. Okay. Right. That's on the case of the bobsled. This is what makes the asymmetry work with the active or passive involvement of the driver is that there's an initial slant such that the normal course of action from that slant is that it's going to go down if you don't do anything. And in order to stop it, you need to actively intervene. Okay. Has, has other people use the example of like dropping a book? Like the person holds the book, they can let it go and they can catch it. So that, like that, the laws, that, the laws that, of gravity that, will do yeah. it naturally what it does. Uh, yeah. But then you have this inter intervention to, okay. Yeah. So uh, there's an intervention needed to stop it, but there's a yeah. permission of letting it happen. And once again, it's fully sure. deterministic. So we can see that the, de the determinism of the Calvinist view is not the problem here. We can affirm on determinism that there is an asymmetry with mm -hmm. a language of permission for something. Okay. And now what I'm going to suggest and is satisfied. So that's you, you need to identify that slant, right? So what is that slant and what's the active or passive involvement uh, on the moment of the of choice? And what I'm going to suggest is fully available to the Molinist just as much as the Calvinist. So okay. I'm, I'm saying Molinist, don't shoot me here. I'm giving you what you we are looking for. And both you and I can affirm this. And okay. that initial slant, I think, on the Christian view is original sin. That is that original sin has in it the teaching that human beings are not neutral, right? We are born sinful, and we have that slant, that bent towards evil. We are inclined to do evil. We are inclined to do um, bad things. Basically, when given the opportunities, we will do bad things. This is a, it's a propensity to evil that is baked into original sin. Hmm. Uh, so just to clarify what part of original sin I have in view, I'm not even using some of the stronger things that reformed folks like me tend to see in original sin. So um, we can clarify sometimes original sin is impacted as original guilt, 
or original inclination. So original guilt is the idea that because of what Adam did, then we are blameworthy. That is that we have a, a moral ledger that is not neutral and that we are uh, guilty before God for Adam's sin. That's a very strong piece that's uh, sometimes understood. That's not even the one I'm appealing to here. So you don't even need to affirm that in order to affirm what I'm uh, proposing. And the other thing that sometimes is backed into original sin is original inclination. And sometimes people mean by that the idea that because of Adam's sin, we are now um, inclined towards sinning in such a way that we are incapable of living a fully sinless life. That's sometimes what is meant by original inclination, the inability to live a sinless life. We are so sinner, so sinful now that when given a chance, we will sin, and therefore we cannot uh, go through this life without sinning. That's original inclination. Even that is a bit stronger than what I'm appealing to. The only thing that I'm appealing to here is simply a bent towards sin, right? right. A, a propensity. Some, I think in the Catholic traditions, they call it concupiscence. It's just the, the fact that we're, we're going to be bent towards sinning. Now, if that's true, and I think that uh, Christians should affirm this, that this mild of an understanding of original sin should be part of a Molinist view of uh, original sin. So if we have that initial slant, then now it becomes perfectly meaningful to say that this is going to be our tendency on any given situation, that if God lets us just unfold naturally this appetite for sin, then we're going to naturally sin. It's like the gravity. Exactly. The gravity is oh, yes, total gravity. And, and for God to prevent that, right, this is, again, Dr. White was saying a lot during the debate, God restrains our sin. Right. And I'm sure that the Molinists were saying, well, what do you mean he restrains our sin? He's the one who caused it, right? He's the one who brought it about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, but as part of original sin. So it's not what's happening on the moment of the sin that is God just pushing us to sin. Or it's, that's why I, I reject uh, Dr. Craig's ca characterization that on the moment of sin, God moves the will to sin. Right. No, the, the will is inclined to sin under God's providence because of original sin in the way that he's wired us as descendant of Adam. We are sinners. Sure. Yes. So that's tilted towards sin. But now with those sinners uh, inclined towards sin, on the moment of choice, we can see a proper asymmetry for God to intervene or not. One is going to be active. The other one is going to be passive. He can mm -hmm. actively work against our original sin in order to incline us to do something good. Or he can more passively let that inclination express itself and therefore permitting that we sin. Mm. So I think that model makes perfect sense of permission language for God about what we do that's evil. Uh, even though I affirm that we are fully determined. Okay. And notice, once again, that this is a model that's really affirmable by Molinists as well. Because really, if you pay attention, it really rests on the truth of counterfactuals, on the fact that if God were to intervene, we would not sin. But if he were to passively let us do it, then we would sin. Mm -hmm. Right, So you have a, a pair of counterfactuals here, one in which God actively intervenes, the other one in which he passively permits us to sin. And so those counterfactuals are affirmable by Calvinists or by Molinists. Sure. Molinists affirm those counterfactuals. So if you have those two counterfactuals, then you've rescued successfully the asymmetry. And God is perfect. It's perfectly meaningful to say that God permits our sin, but actively brings about our good. 
All right. Very good. That's a lot to unpack. I'm glad you were able to get it out. I know that's kind of long for people. They want to get to their questions, but I want this video to survive as kind of like filled with content for people to kind of chew on. So um, thank you for tracking with us, everyone who's listening in. And so, um, and at the end of the day, you don't, you don't agree. Okay. Don't agree. Hey, you argue, you give your reasons and you interact and uh, that that's how the cookie crumbles. Uh, but, but let's take it from here. Though. Let's take some questions. Guillaume, if we can do kind of a rapid fire, um, don't feel obligated to unpack all the details, just kind of quick, uh, concise as best as we can. Um, yes. And we'll see if we can, if we can tackle a bunch of these. Uh, first uh, question is not going to be popping up on the screen. It was the first person who sent in a question and then it disappeared. And so they sent it to me through a private message. So I'm going to ask the question here. This is from uh, John Cranman. Uh, he says, Dr. Bignon, on your view, God determines everything. So how does God determine something without actually causing it? If you say via secondary causes, keep in mind puppet strings are secondary causes for the puppeteer. So how do you show that determinism does not collapse into causalism? Yeah, so I don't have to do that, basically. I, I said I don't have a problem with saying that God causes the evil that's happening in this world uh, mm -hmm. because I think that the idea of causation is quite complex and it can very properly be used to describe a deterministic view of free will. So I, I won't be shying away from saying that God causes that evil happen, right? He causes the evil that's there. Uh, and I think it's pretty much... Um, in the lines of some of the biblical teachings we've read, right? I mean, I am the Lord who does all those things. So it's not far-fetched to say, well, it's causing, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, he's the one who brings it about, he's doing it. Uh, so on the deterministic view, I don't have a problem with that. Just as I wouldn't have a problem as a Molinist to say that God causes the evil that happens, mm -hmm. but he does so in a non-deterministic way. So I think it boils down to what you want to mean by causation here. There's a, a range of meanings, some of which are even consistent with the Molinist view, but the Calvinist is not going to be bothered with it until we're told what exactly is in view, and is that really a problem? So I don't think it's a problem that God causes sin, as long as we maintain that God is not himself bad by doing that. So. Okay, excellent. Um, thank you for the super chat. Writer John Buck, uh, thanks for the $5. The question for Binyang, does Calvinism require the rejection of ought implies can, as in there are some things we ought to do that we can't do. Uh, yes, I think that's, well, uh, so once again, the philosopher's answer is going to be, it depends on what you mean by uh, can. Uh, and so the full discussion of the ought implies can is again in my book, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, and you'll find all of your answers there. But in, the, in just a second, I think, yes, that the Calvinist should reject ought implies can. And not only that, but use that as an argument against libertarianism, because mm. very plausibly, and this is what I argue in my book, this uh, principle ought implies can is a uh, logical consequence of incompatibilism, which is an ingredient of libertarianism, uh, that the view that um, moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. If that's the case, then it means um, uh, we cannot be morally responsible unless we have this libertarian ability to do otherwise. Right. That's the, the incompatibilist view. And uh, we have a strong counter argument uh, here by uh, pointing out both the an argument by Martin Luther, which says that uh, if we can, if free, free will can do one thing, then it can do everything. That is that uh, if we if we need to be able to do that, which we ought to do, then it follows that Pelagian is true. Uh, mm -hmm. Pelagianism is true. 
right? He says that if if the inference, and he's talking about that inference, or implies can, it says sure. if the inference stands good, then the Pelagians have won the day. And the okay. reason for that is because we ought to live a sinless life, but we cannot live a sinless life. So you, you ought to live absolutely free of sin, but you cannot do that in virtue of original sin. So mm. you ought to do something that you cannot do. That's one counterexample right there. Uh, okay. And the other is that the ought implies can uh, maxim is actually uh, logically equivalent in my interpretation of the, to the relevant words. I can, so it's going to take a little bit of unpacking, but it's equivalent to the uh, libertarian claim that moral responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise. Right, and that principle itself, when it it's taken as a categorical ability to do otherwise, which is what the libertarian free will requires, then that principle is refuted by the existence of God or Jesus as an impeccable human being. He is still morally responsible for what he's doing. So right. here you have another counterexample, and that's an argument that I think Luther also offers, but certainly Jonathan Edwards, that um, Jesus as an impeccable human being or God as an impeccable being, they are still morally responsible because they are praiseworthy for what they do, and yet they don't have the ability to sin, to do something less than praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. So you have another counterexample to the idea that uh, moral responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise or that ought implies can. So okay. yeah, I think the Calvinist should reject that, but I'm also saying that the libertarian should reject that and therefore re reject his own view of incompatibilism in the in the process. This is right. a positive I argument against non-Calvinist views here. Excellent. Uh, Dylan uh, asks, please ask Bignong his opinion on Dr. Muller's view of determinism. Maybe some passing comments there. If you agree with it, don't agree with it, maybe an illustration real quick, and then we'll move to the next one. Yeah, so here... Um, I mean, there's, I don't know what they have in mind when they say his view of determinism. The, the big idea is that uh, Dr. Mueller's work is usually um, brought about to say, look, um, even within the Calvinist camp, within the reform tradition, there are people who can affirm libertarianism. That if just because you're a Calvinist doesn't mean you have to be a determinist. And so this is typically the argument that is made there. And I disagree. Uh, I think that uh, the Calvinist view should be seen as deterministic. So then you're going to get into debates as to, well, who gets to define Calvinism, right? So uh, maybe if you want to define Calvinism more loosely in such a way that you include libertarian views, uh, then you can use the word Calvinism for non-deterministic views. But then in that case, I would say that you will likely land on Molinist views. Mm -hmm. If you affirm libertarianism and you also affirm a very strong view of divine providence over human choices... That's the Molinist model. So it's easier to, to say there's Calvinist determinism on one side and Molinism on a distinct side, rather than to say that the word Calvinism could cover both of those to the exclusion of maybe open theism. I don't know. Um, so I find that better use of the word Calvinism to talk about the deterministic view. And additionally, I would say that even by the own standards of some of the folks who claim that Calvinists uh, can be libertarians, um, you can actually make a case that even their own standard excludes non-deterministic views. So, for example, they tend to look at the Reformed Confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, I think that Oliver Crisp is one who takes that. He says, well, if you just look at the Confession, you can still try to shove in some libertarianism somewhere, so you don't have to be a determinist if you're a Calvinist. Okay. Uh, and I disagree with that uh, because the Westminster Confession, as I said, um, it has very strong statement on divine providence that explicitly deny that this providence of God is based on what God knows will happen 
or would happen. Like this is super explicit. There's the, it's not what he foreknows in the future and yeah. it's not what he knows uh, hypothetically with the would. So you have a, a fairly explicit denial of counterfactuals of liberty and free will as the basis for God's determining action. And so I don't think that the Westminster Confession can be reconciled with a Molinist view uh, or a non-determinist view. And there's a paper by Paul Manada and uh, James uh, Anderson uh, that kind of makes that case that no, Calvinism is not compatible with libertarianism. All right. Thank you so much for that. Martin Luther, not the, the Martin Luther, but uh, he asks, uh, please clarify what you mean by evil. Most non-philosophers think evil means sin. So um, when we say God's not the author of evil, uh, what do we mean by evil? Yeah, so every bad thing that happens. Uh, so that's right. There's some distinction that can be made. Sometimes we make differences between moral evil and natural evil. That's the, the wording in the philosophical literature. Uh, and moral evil is all the bad things, the evil things that people do. Right, so this is I'm, I'm making a choice. I'm a sinful, uh, selfish, you know, murderous, uh, like hateful. All of those choices that are going to be evil. That's more evil from human being, or not just humans. That can be also demons, right? That's free agents doing uh, more bad. Uh, and then there's natural evil. That's the phrase that's usually referring to um, catastrophes, sicknesses. Uh, so just the things that are not involving moral agents, but simply some uh, pain and suffering that's happening uh, caused by natural causes. And so I, I don't think it's the best use of the word evil there. So I would be fine with using the word evil just for moral evil, but that's what we've been meaning. Now, mind you, um, on the field of natural evil, I think that, I, again, at the beginning of the debate between uh, William Lane Craig and James White, I think Dr. Craig uh, granted this, that on natural evil, both the Calvinist and Molinist should be agreeing that there's virtually no difference. God is fully in control of that. And it is arguably deterministic, right? So there, there's no liberty and free will of the of the tornado to uh, freely destroy the boat. Uh, there's not the, the liberty and free will of the earthquake. Uh, so the, the cancer cells don't have liberty and free will. So the providence of God over all of that natural evil is the same on the Molinist and the Calvinist view. All right. Very good. Uh, John Buck, uh, thanks again for the $5 super chat. He says, do you think that God has libertarian free will, as in he could have refrained from creating the world given the same set of antecedent conditions? So that's a good question. So um, I would say not libertarian free will because libertarianism is both the thesis that we are not determined and that um, determinism is incompatible with moral responsibility, right? So if you affirm libertarian free will, you're affirming libertarianism, which is incompatibilism plus the thesis that some of our actions are free. So you cannot leave that be as a Calvinist. You cannot say that libertarianism is true uh, because um, that means that incompatibilism is true, and that's in, and that's directly contradictory to compatibilism. So, as a compatibilist, I am committed to saying that libertarianism is false. That is, that incompatibilism is false. Now, the question is: Could God have refrained from creating the world, could, given the same sets of antecedent conditions? My answer is: I'm not too sure what to say there. I, I have given it a little bit of thought, but not done tremendous research on that. Um, so. There's, there's, there's two options here for the Calvinists. You can say um, that God could have uh, done some other things uh, given exactly same sets of circumstances, which means that God is not determined in, in some of those decisions that he's made. Um, and that rescues that God could have brought about a, a different world. So there are more, there are several different possible worlds and he just picked one. Um, and 
what you would need to say is that that kind of freedom on God's part is not the same that we have as human beings. That's one option for the Calvinist. Mm -hmm. The other is to say, no, God is actually um, like, what to say. So no, God is in fact, uh, there's only one thing that uh, is the best in this case. And that's therefore what God must necessarily do. That mm -hmm. God being the best being in that situation, there's there's one best thing to do, and that's the only thing that he really could have done, all things being just the way they, they you were. Now, that view entails all sorts of different interesting things. One thing is called the modal collapse. That is that now all of a sudden, if God is the one, if God in all circumstances only has one uh, outcome possible, that means that there are no alternate possible worlds, there, that all truth become necessary, Right. right. Given all the antecedents and all the reasons that God has, then all truth become necessary, uh, necessary truths. Um, and so these questions about whether that's bad. I don't even know that it's bad. Usually it's kind of used, used as a boogeyman. Like, oh, if you are from that, then now that's modal collapse, game over. And I'm not sure that this is game over with modal collapse. I think you can still meaningfully speak about possible worlds uh, by refining a little bit your analysis there. So I don't think it's a huge deal. But I'm not too sure which of those two scenarios to affirm. Uh, I haven't really committed to either of them. But I just know these are the options for a Calvinist on the question of God's free will. Okay, excellent. Um, Scott says, this can't be, uh, thanks for the super chat. This can't be a Calvinist podcast. There aren't any books in the background. Uh, well, yeah. There are books. There are books right there in the uh, in the <laughs> closet, but there are books on fashion design because that's uh, uh, I, sh I share an office with my wife who is a fashion designer, so uh, my books are in the library now. So okay. we move. Uh -huh. Now, if I'm skipping people's questions, that's because you did not preface your question with the word question. So I'm not going to try too hard to look for the ones from people who did not follow directions. <laughs> so. Uh, let's see here. Moving, moving quickly, quickly, quickly. You're doing a great job, by the way, Guillaume. Guillaume, uh, Guillaume. Sorry, for some reason I couldn't pronounce your name. What's up with that? Some uh, reason. For some reason. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Uh, this is from Pine Creek. Uh, he is our resident uh, atheist or agnostic, however he'd like to identify himself. He always comes with these interesting kind of scenarios. <laughs> so I hope you have fun with this one. Uh, if I give my child a gun and know with 100% certainty that my child will kill his sister, am I responsible, at least partially? All right. So this this is actually a good uh, use case uh, to, mm -hmm. to say a couple of interesting things. So the first piece is that the am I responsible? Uh, and so we've discussed a little bit this question of is God responsible for when he brings about the evil on uh, on Calvinism? And we've said there's the equivocation on moral responsibility and uh, causal responsibility. So you're clearly at least partially causally responsible. Yes. Um, and are you also morally responsible? In this case, I would say yes. You're also guilty of uh, negligence, you know, reckless endangerment or whatever you want to phrase it. There is something wrong that you did there. The question is, can this case be relevantly compared to God bringing about evil when there are some really key relevant differences, one of which being that God is the creator and proper ruler of the universe who has the prerogative of controlling everything that happens, and he's also intended for the evil to serve a greater good. Now, obviously, Guillaume Bignon does not know what the greater good is behind these situations, but God knows full well what the evil um, what good will come out of evil. And so we can say that 
on the co co coherent Christian model, God intends for that greater good rather than just uh, for the evil as an end in itself. Mm. So God has all of these relevant dissimilarity with the uh, human reckless uh, father who gives the child a gun. God is controlling everything that happens, knows full well the good that would come out of it, and he's after that. So you can't really make an argument against that. Now, last thing I would say about this interesting use case is, thank you very much, Pine Creek. This is actually ammunition against the Molinist view as well, right? So if just uh, giving a child a gun, knowing full well what would happen uh, when he does that, makes the person guilty, then this, this is applicable to a Molinist view as well, because on Molinism, the god of Molinism knows full well what would happen given certain circumstances in which, in which he places us. Mm. So once again, if we think that's a problem, then that's refuting Molinism just as much as it's refuting Calvinism. Thankfully, okay. I don't think that's a problem, and Molinists should join me with that. All right. Uh, Canadian Catholic, thank you for your $2 super chat. Is Vignon a presupposition? Are you trying to start a fight here? I can answer that one for you. Uh, this, this, is, this is fantastic. So uh, my answer is this, and I love to phrase it like that. Um, I agree with James Anderson about absolutely everything he says about apologetics, <laughs> except that he calls himself a presuppositionalist, and I don't. <laughs> so, so I endorse... Uh, Everything that he says, I just don't think... So there's many things that presuppositionalists say that sound to me like they're the only ones saying it, and those, I think, are dead wrong. And then there's lots of things that I hear presuppositionalists say that I think are perfectly fine, but then I don't think that people on the classical side disagree with that. So um, I'm fully happy to... So, so basically, Guillaume, you think presuppositionalists, good presuppositionalists, are just clo closet classicalists. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but I, I think that presuppositionalism is just a different way of phrasing things, right? So, I mean, that's a fully separate debate, but I sure. think that presupposition is is not, like, it's just an important belief that you have that's foundational to your worldview. So it's not a, a presupposition of a premise in an argument that you thereby beg. Uh, so I, I think that, that presuppositionalism understood like that is fine. But mm -hmm. there's lots of claims that are made by folks like Seitenberger and Kate and other popular level presuppositionalists that sound very strange to me and that sound like they're the only ones who make those claims and I think they're dead wrong. So that, 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 that's, that's for my assessment of presuppositionalism. Now, I've had plenty of conversations with James Anderson, who is a very ardent defender of presuppositionalism. I agree with him on everything he says about apologetics and philosophy and somehow I don't think I'm a presuppositionalist and he thinks he is. So... Uh, <laughs> How's <laughs> that for a non-answer? Thank you so much for that, Guillaume. Uh, John Buck, again, thanks for your super chat. If God restrained the brothers of Joseph by keeping them from killing Joseph, would there be a counterfactual of creaturely freedom there? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but there's not just one, there's two. And these are the two that I was trying to highlight, right? That there is the active counterfactual and passive counterfactual. That is that the, brother, the brothers of, Jesus, of Joseph have this bent towards doing the sinful thing because of their sinful inclination they inherited in original sin. And in light of that inclination towards sinning, you have a counterfactual on each side that says, if God actively worked on their hearts to refrain them, they would not kill Joseph. And that's the counterfactual that turned out to be factual. <laughs> and then there's the uh, passive uh, counterfactual, which says, if God had passively permitted them to do the inclination of their hearts, to follow the inclination of their hearts, they would have killed Joseph. So I think you have those two counterfactuals. 
and they are the reason why we can say that God permitted, uh, well, no, here he didn't permit them to uh, kill Joseph, but he permitted them to sell him into slavery, right? Mm. So there was a sin involved here that I think is meaningfully said to be permitted by God, but, uh, and that's again on the same grounds for Molinists and Calvinists, but the Calvinists are going to say, yeah, God determined that this would happen. It's, sure. you know, that's a very strong sense. God meant it for good and um, they meant it for evil. Excellent. Argerer says, is Guillaume using deductive reasoning or abductive reasoning with the Bible to arrive at Calvinism? Uh, well, it depends. I would say abductive in, uh, in any, any one given uh, case. So if you, you take any one text, uh, I probably will say, well, it doesn't logically follow from this text that Calvinism is true. But uh, yes, uh, Calvinism makes the best sense of that text. So it's more objective like that. But I don't know if you stack enough of them uh, and you fill all, up all the gaps uh, by all of those uh, uh, biblical texts, maybe from all of those, it logically follows that uh, Calvinism is true. Um, so I'm not too sure how to assess that, frankly. I think that it's a cumulative case. Uh, there's biblical texts that um, that teach strongly that God is, you know, again, lots of different languages. He's bringing about, he's doing, he's, mm-hmm. he's involved in changing our hearts and making us do the things that we do that strongly lean towards the Calvinist view. Um, and then there are still a couple of things. Now, wait a second. Let me say something a bit more, uh, a bit stronger here. There are some biblical texts that give you support for the premises of a deductive argument for Calvinism. And these are the ones that I mentioned earlier. That's Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards' arguments Mm -hmm. uh, against the principle of alternate possibility. I think there's biblical texts that teach that we cannot live a sinless life, right? So that that original sin is fully a biblical teaching. And that's in that light, we are not able to live a sinless life. um, And yet we are morally responsible for that. So there's biblical teachings there that are used in premises for this argument, which now logically entails that incompatibilism must be false because more responsibility does not in fact require the ability to do otherwise, and therefore compatibilism follows. So you have a deductive argument there with a premise that's biblical. Similarly, for God's impeccability, you have an impeccable God who's morally praiseworthy for doing the good. And so those things are biblically taught, right? That God is praiseworthy, that's biblically taught. And the fact that God cannot sin, that's also biblically taught. And those two together form the premises of this deductive argument that says, therefore, the principle of alternate possibilities is false, from which it follows that compatibilism is true. Mm -hmm. So you do have deductive reasoning there, but probably a bit weaker on the text that simply affirm that God brings about all the things that happen in this world. All right, James West says, uh, you don't understand Molinism, Guillaume. Knowing X is not the same as causing X. We are not in the same boat. Did you assume that at all? I'm not aware that I ever did that. So no, I don't think that. So so I agree. Let's let's affirm here. Yes, knowing X is not the same as causing X. Yes, we're on the same, uh, on the same boat here. Okay, there you go. Uh, let's see here. No, that question I don't think you're going to want because it will make you take sides on what you thought about <laughs> <laughs> about the, the James White and uh, let's see here. Um, okay, uh, Scott Terry, thanks again for the super chat. Uh, he says, does Molinism via libertarianism need what is called ex- existential inertia? If so, doesn't that commit them to a radically unorthodox metaphysic? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. So I, I haven't seen that phrase existential inertia. Uh, I think that Molinism has, hmm, let's say, this might be referring to the 
to the problem of arbitrariness in the libertarian choice, right? So if you say that a, a free choice must be um, categorically open, that you can do one thing or the other, given all things being just as they are on the moment of choice, there's a classic problem that's raised by Calvinists now against the libertarian view that says, look, if all things being just as they are, you can do one or the other, then whichever you do is arbitrary. It's, it seems like a fluke rather than really an expression of who you are on the moment of choice. Um, so if that's the problem of arbitrariness or randomness, um, then maybe, yeah, that's a, that's a problem that can be raised against Molinism for their libertarianism. Mm -hmm. But if, if what we are saying here is simply this idea that the person is uh, not inclined one way or the other um, in such a way that God would need to come and bring about one or the other, um, I'm guessing that here, this is where the Calvinist and the Molinist are on the same boat, and they want to affirm what I was giving. That is, that there's a, an initial bent, and I think that the Molinist can say that, right? That the, the initial inclination, the propensity to sin, is compatible with libertarianism. Uh, you just want to make sure that... So the, 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 the libertarian is going to say that this influences our choice. It just doesn't determine it. So I think that, yes, Molinists should affirm something very strongly in that direction. Now, I'll still have some grief with that because I'll say, well, given all things, despite all of the influences and your sinful nature, uh, you are still trying to say that we can refrain from sin, right? That it's, it's really metaphysically open, that it's possible for us to avoid the sin. And that, again, can be aggregated over all of the, uh, um, all of the events of a given person's life. And if that aggregates, which I think I show successfully in my book, Excusing Sinners and May Blaming God, you can provide an argument by recurrence, recursion, where you say, if that, you take the first, uh, the first choice, um, okay, does the person have the ability to avoid the sin? So if libertarianism is true, then yes, they have it. Let's imagine that therefore there's the possible world in which they refrain from sinning. Let's jump to their next sin. Does, do we still have the ability? Yes, we have the ability to avoid the sin and so on. And you jump from sin, from uh, opportunity of, from free choice to free choice and you go through the entire life of the person and it aggregates to the fact that they now can live a sinless life despite original sin. So you land in Pelagianism which is really the denial that uh, being that salvation by grace is necessary because you have to affirm that you cannot be blamed unless you have the categorical ability to avoid the sin and original sin in the orthodox sense would not permit that. Okay. Um, there's a biblical question here. Um, how do you understand Matthew 23, 37? Can God not accomplish his goals in a deterministic model? So let me get Matthew. Uh, yeah, he's still wailing against uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem and your leaders. Yes. So let me see. Let me just get the passage here so that we can read it. Okay. So yes. So, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing? Yeah. Um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I think that here the, the articulation is again between the difference between the prescriptive will and the uh, decretive will. So that uh, God's ultimate will is done, uh, but that it's consistent with saying that there are some things that he wishes were different, right? But it's just things in isolation. So just like saying that he um, he, he wishes that the crucifixion hadn't taken place, right? He, he It's a bad thing that people killed Jesus. So in that sense, like God would have avoided that, but he had a greater purpose and so, therefore, his highest will was that. 
but it, it's it's the same tension that we have when the Bible says that uh, he didn't want this to happen. It, it, it doesn't please him when you know the, the death of the uh, of the death of people, the, the death of the wicked doesn't even please God, let alone the death of his righteous son. And yet the Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Right, so the pleasing here is just a different sense. There's one that says it's a, it's a general desire, it's a prescription, and the other one is the highest will because God has morally sufficient reasons. So I think that this is the uh, application I would do for a text like this, uh, like I would do for any text that says that God doesn't get what He wants, that He doesn't get what He willed. It's just the will of the of um, the, uh, prescription. Uh, it's His general good, benevolent will for the world, um, but He has sometimes a purpose for not bringing it about. And again, once again, I don't know that the Molinist is going to be much easier off the hook on this one because also for plenty of evil things that are happening, uh, I think it's coherent for the Molinist to say God doesn't really want this to happen, but he still brings this about through his middle knowledge. Um, so the only thing is that the, Calv the Molinist will have some instances where the only reason why God doesn't bring about the action is because of free will. Right. Mm. So the, on the Molinist view, you have possible worlds that are filtered out by libertarian free will to leave a smaller subset of worlds that are the feasible world. Mm. So that filtering means that God's options are a little bit limited by free will. And so there are some things uh, that some bad things that happen only because of that filtering out of by libertarianism. Um, and so for those, yes, the Molinist will be able to say, no, God really wishes that things had been different, but free will is the only reason why he can't do that. Mm. But what I'm saying is that the Molinist shouldn't say that about all evil. I think that the Molinist has the resources and should use those resources to be as close to the Calvinist position on this to say plenty of God, plenty of bad things that are happening in this world are fully in the providence of God for a higher purpose that justifies God wanting this to happen. So this is where, again, the Molinist is going to come in ranges, right? How well do they use the resources of Molinism uh, to affirm God's providence over evil? I would say some Molinists can get really close to the, uh, the Calvinist view on this, mm -hmm. and they have a much stronger view, in my sense, uh, of God's providence over evil. Uh, if I can plug, I think Kirk McGregor, I've heard make some uh, very strong uh, statements in that direction, and I've clapped every time. I think that when you have a Molinist who fully uses middle knowledge to make God fully in control of evil like that, uh, I think it's it's great uh, existentially, at least experientially, uh, in practice, is going to really affirm things that are close to what the Calvinist is saying about evil, and that's music to my ears. Now, obviously, he's still within a libertarian framework, and I think that's false, but um, on the range of false views, this is as close as it gets to what I take to be true. <laughs> All right, I'm going to just take two more questions because you've been going for a while, and I, I want to... I can't even say I want to respect your time because I think I've disrespected your time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, look, I'm sorry. We can go all night. This is fine. All right. So, uh, so, so, so how about three more questions? Is that, is that okay? Yeah. Okay. I don't know how this question, <laughs> I can't get this on the screen, but someone is asking, um, uh, this is a, a super chat. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, by Jono. Uh, why did no early church father from Justin Martyr until the early Augustine teach determinism, but rather condemned it as heresy? That's their question. 
Yeah, I don't know that they condemned it as heresy. Um, why did they not? I mean, even Augustine, it's not obvious that um, he was teaching determinism, right? The word determinism is a modern philosophical term. Uh, we've just come to um, put some uh, clear, careful, rigorous language onto concepts that were not necessarily super clear in everybody's mind. So mm -hmm. obviously the church fathers had all sorts of different views. Why is it that the question of, again, I don't know that determinism was already discussed with Augustine. I think his view is entailing determinism, right? So I, I do count Augustine, at least the late Augustine, in my camp. Uh, and this is what Calvin does by quoting him like, like all throughout the day in the institutes. There's Augustine here and there, um, mm -hmm. everywhere. But um, I don't think that determinism really is a debated philosophical question in Augustine. Um, I... What, what is one reason why it may not have come into sharp focus until then? Um, that might well be because the controversy didn't really arise as much and it was occasioned by the writings of Pelagius. I think that this is oftentimes it kind of gets like that. You only focus on defending the truth and affirming the truth when it's being challenged by the heretics. And I think you can see that a lot in conversations on Christology, on the Trinity, that the, the the, what we take to be the orthodox side becomes really vocal when the people denying it are becoming vocal. So right. I would think this is a plausible explanation for the chronology of when things really got serious with Augustine because Pelagius showed up. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's my take. Now, I'm not a historian, so uh, I'll leave that to um, uh, students of uh, church history. I'm a philosopher and I'm focusing on their ideas rather than where they come from. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Irresistible Truth, thank you for the $5 super chat. For those who argue God causing evil takes evil intent to do so, is it fair to argue that God, by definition, can't transgress himself or transgress against himself or sin? Let's see. So for those who argue God causing evil takes evil intent to do so, is it fair to argue that God, by definition, can't transgress against himself? I see those two as, as two different questions and I'm not sure how to connect them. So let me just take one part after another. So sure. uh, God causing evil takes evil intent to do. Uh, I think that's false. And I think that's something that we've discussed in this, uh, this show, that you can cause something that's evil, that is like you can cause human beings to do some evil without yourself being evil if you have a good intent and you're God and you know full well that that good intent will come about and you have only those good intentions in view. So you have do, the two different intentions. The sinful, the sinful men are doing it for their evil purposes. God is bringing it about for his good. So I think that that's a correct explanation for why God is not evil, even though we may say that he causes uh, the evil to do. Once again, causation doesn't have to be deterministic, so this might be something fully affirmed by the Molinist God, that God is not necessarily evil just because he brings about or weakly, weakly actualizes a state of affair that contains evil. It's just that he's after the good and there's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. So now, is it fair to argue that God, by definition, can't transgress against himself? Uh, yeah, that's what all Christians are going to say. He cannot transgress against himself. And there are some things that are metaphysically impossible for God to do. Um, so you want to be careful about what you put in that category as a Christian, sure. because there's lots of things that seem like they're wrong when we do them, but not for God. Right. So, again, right. killing, like taking the life of a human being is not something that's wrong for God to do. Uh, right. But it's wrong for us to do. So you want to be careful about what you put in the bag of things that are impossible for God to do, given his own goodness. 
but yes, I, I would think that there are some plenty of things that we can put in there that we would say are categorically impossible for God to do. All right, very good. And this is the last question. Uh, there are some, but again, I can't differentiate them uh, because there's just so many comments here. So can you be forced and free? Okay, so it's going to depend on what we mean by forced. Typically, what we have in view is coercion. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that it's either physical force or maybe threats. That's what usually is used for coercion. And I have taken the position that coercion does exclude moral responsibility so that the answer here would be no. You cannot be forced in that sense of coercion, like as having physical force, while at the same time being free. So I, I agree that coercion removes moral responsibility. And then obviously I say that coercion is not relevantly similar to God's determination of the human will. So I don't think that God uses physical force or threats in order to bring about what we freely do. And therefore, mm. there's no relevant similarity between the case of coercion and the normal case of God determining what we do. All right. I need to give you a round of applause. Whether whether folks agree with you or not, that was a lot of information. Uh, we are up at two hours and 11 minutes. Again, like you, Guillaume, I can talk about this stuff or even just listen to you talk about it forever. Um, but I think this, like the other two times you came on, uh, there's just a lot of content if people want to dig in and maybe um, they hear certain terms that they want to dig into more and, and they can kind of uh, do their own studying. So um, thank you so much. This was excellent. And guys who are listening in, thank you so much for the super chats, the questions. Um, and um, thank you for just being here and, and, um, and benefiting from the channel. So I do appreciate uh, if you haven't subscribed yet um, to Revealed Apologetics, please do so. Share the content if you find it helpful and um, go over to Amazon and check out Guillaume's book uh, if you want a more in-depth analysis of this uh, topic. And again, at the end of the day, if you agree, disagree, make sure you're doing so with gentleness and respect, representing Christ in the midst of these interesting and vigorous debates. Uh, that's all for this episode. Guillaume, is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap this up? No, thank you very much, Eli. This was great. I'm glad that we were able to put this material out there because we were very thorough here. So yes. this is really a good opportunity to tackle, like, does Calvinism mean that God is the author of sin? I think we've really unpacked the question, and I'm hoping this helps people to engage in this uh, argument themselves. Excellent. And this, uh, folks who follow the podcast, I will be posting this along with my interview with uh, Dr. White, uh, his post-debate uh, interview that I had with him the other day. And, um, and do me a solid. If you follow the podcast, uh, write a positive review. That, that totally helps. And I love to hear what you guys have to say, um, especially if folks are benefiting from the material. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.